Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. Restless Nights, Mini Dreams, and it is by a band called Donovan's Brain, which is appropriate for our episode today, Richard. Uh, that song is from the 2013 album Turned Up Later, and you can find it on iTunes. So welcome to the Classic Horrors Club podcast on the Phantom Podcast Network. I'm Jeff Owens, and with me is... This is Richard Chamberlain. We are doing a theme episode, I guess. Tell us a little bit about what people can expect today. Well, you know, we were coming up with ideas for episodes, and I have a, a passion for old-time radio. And many years ago, one of the very first radio shows I listened to was Suspense, and they did a two-part adaptation of Donovan's Brain. When I discovered old-time radio shows, my dad came home from a business trip with a cassette tape of Abbott and Costello's Who's On First, and I was hooked. And then he introduced me to The Shadow, and I absolutely love The Shadow. And I went down to my local library, and they had a whole cart full, a wall of old-time radio shows on cassettes. And I was just checking them out and discovering which shows I liked, and I loved certain comedies and suspense. They had a ton of suspense, and one of those they had was Donovan's Brain. And they had, it was 60-minute cassettes, so you had... Two shows, uh, one you know, one on each side, and so I could get both parts with one rental. And um, I just this particular story it had stars, you know, the original radio adaptation starred Orson Welles, which we'll talk about. Who, of course, I knew because he was in the shadows, so I just had a strong connection to it. And I, you know, have not I'd only seen one of the movie adaptations, and. Uh, I thought it'd be fun if we sat through and watched it. I didn't even know there was a there was a third adaptation in '62 until we had kind of dived into this. So I thought it would be fun to compare and contrast the story of Donovan's brain. Yeah, and I didn't even know. I only knew of the movie. Well, and I knew it was based on a book, but uh, who knew there were two other movie versions of Donovan's brain? And uh, so, yeah, that'll that'll be interesting to talk about those. Before we get into that, though, we've got a voicemail. We had somebody leave feedback, and uh, our Dark Shadows episode continues to get comments and, and feedback. So, uh, For as overwhelming uh, as that episode was, it seems to resonate yeah. with people. Yeah, and, I, uh, I think they just admire us for taking the challenge. I don't know that it was any good, but... Uh, some people think so. Well, so, we survived, and yes. we're still here. We haven't been canceled yet. So, yes. You can leave a voicemail, too, by calling this number, 616-649-2582. That is 616-649-CLUB. That is what Steve Turek did, and that's what you may want to do 
uh, after you listen to this episode. If you stay tuned through the end, we are going to announce a contest. And one of the ways you can enter is to give us a call at that number. So here's what Steve had to say about the Dark Shadows episode. Hi, guys. This is Steve Turk calling you. Um, I've been loving your podcast since um, it started out and everything. And I wanted to give you feedback with your Dark Shadows episode that you did a couple weeks back. Um, I really enjoyed it. I used to watch Dark Shadows. I think it ran in syndication in my area in reruns. I wasn't really around when it first ran. And I always remembered enjoying it. And then a few years back, I bought the Coffin case, which you guys mentioned, which has all the episodes. And hearing your review of it has me thinking. I tried one time to go through them all. And as you guys mentioned, it, it, it is tough to try to go through that um, mountain of material. And I made it about a year and a half to two years in. Um, I'm thinking this year in November I'm going to start and try again. I'm going to be committed. I'm going to try to get it done. I know this might sound crazy. In like 61 to 62 weeks, a little more than a year. I'm going to try to see if I can get through those 1,225 episodes. Um, that kind of stuff. Being that they're 30 out, 30 minutes each. So I'm hopefully, knock on wood and everything, we'll be able to get through all that. But I really enjoyed your guys' feedback on it. It has me excited to try to go through the series again. Um, one other thing I want to say, thanks for the shout out, talking about Richard Anderson's picture that I put up on Facebook. That was from the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgic Convention, which was two years ago. They had a, a bionic reunion. So it was great that um, Lee Majors, Lindsey Wagner, and Richard Anderson were all there, and I got to meet all three of them. Um, it was really fun, and Richard Anderson was um, uh, very interesting and a nice person to meet. Um, you could tell he was nearing um, the end of his convention times. It seems like he kept going on even beyond that. And um, it was just a was just a real nice man, and the, their one hour Q and A that the three of them had, um, and the panel was the highlight of that whole convention. So look forward to hearing what you guys have to say about the Mimiverse. I just downloaded it; I haven't put it in yet. Um, that kind of stuff. So um, you guys keep up the good work. Look forward to hearing more of your stuff, and um, I hope you guys have a great um, fall and enjoy the rest of your October. Thanks. Thank you, Steve, and God bless you, sir. Good luck on getting through Dark Shadows. I have tried it several times. I know we said that in the episode, and I also would like to do that. Keep us posted. Let us know how it's going. I'm real curious, and you seem like the kind of guy that if you say you're going to do it, you will. That's what you did with the the Mimiverse movies, so um, keep in touch and let us know how your journey goes. We need to talk real quickly, since we're speaking of Dark Shadows, There is a new streaming service that has just launched for, I can't remember the exact price, but for X amount of dollars, you can become a subscriber and reportedly have access to, I believe, the entire run of the series. I haven't looked into it. It it piqued my interest because I want to see more of Dark Shadows. That coffin set, while it would look beautiful in my collection, is daunting, However, I do love physical media over streaming because streaming can go away overnight. Physical media is with you as long as the disc can play. Uh, What are your thoughts? 
Well, I don't want to discourage Dark Shadows getting introduced to anybody. For me, it it doesn't work at all. There's no purpose. And it does seem a little pricey. I think it was $6.99 or $7.99 a month. Now, I think if you were dedicated and were going to get through the entire series, that might be a good option because, sure, you might pay 7 or 8 bucks a month, but you can get through it in however many months. That's probably you're going to come out better than if you purchase the coffin set. So, I mean, I think it's good for some people, and I'm, I'm glad to see. There is one thing about it that piqued my interest. They said that subscribers will get a first peek at a Dark Shadows documentary that seems to be in production right now. I don't know anything about that. Um, I need to try to find out what I can, but um, that could be a little perk for uh, being a subscriber. Now, I don't know. I didn't look enough into it. Is Is this just through like computers or is this like an app that you can watch through Roku and, and Apple TV? That's a good question. And uh, we'll answer it next month during old business. Well, see, <laughs> I, I, I asked this because um, I, you know, still am, I guess a Stargate fan and there is a new Stargate command website that launched and for uh, you subscribe, it's like a one-time rate and it takes you through April of next year Gives you access to every series, all 10 seasons of Stargate SG-1, all of Stargate Atlantis and Stargate Universe, which I didn't care for, and the Stargate animated series. And it's intense an attempt to get people to get reinterested in the Stargate franchise because they're doing an exclusive online Stargate like origin series, which is interesting. The problem with this is is that they got this website, it's great, it's wonderful, but it is not something that you can watch through Roku or Apple TV. You've got to watch it on on your PC. And that I think in this day and age is, is an incredibly stupid way to launch a streaming service because not everyone in fact, I mean everyone pushes, you know, get you know, you want to get the 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 Apple TV you want to get Roku that's how if you're watching streaming you want to be able to watch it on your television I know some people don't watch that way but for those of us who grew up in the over the air antenna days and the cable days for me if I'm watching something streaming and I'm adapting to that I want to watch it on my TV and so I'm interested in the Stargate series my girlfriend loves Stargate she was interested in it but we don't want to watch it on a laptop. We want to watch it on the big screen. And so I don't know for me, if dark shadows streaming services is, is going to succeed, it's going to have to be available through one of those, one of those uh, services. I don't right, know. You'd have to be dedicated. I mean, if for that much per month, you'd have to say, I'm watching X number of episodes per day. Uh, daylight be damned. I'm not going to see the outside world. I will join my family again in, in, in a year or six months or what have you. I mean, you have to be dedicated to get your money's worth. Otherwise, you're probably going to be better off trying to add the physical media and then watching at your own pace. Yeah, but but it's a good thing. Anything that gives people access to Dark Shadows in a new way and could possibly pick up some new viewers. That's that's fantastic. I'm all for it. And I think it's, it's you know, is it coincidence that they launched this just a few months after our podcast? Well, know. you know, our podcast generated so much interest and uh, MPI Home Video, which does all the Dark Shadows stuff and Jim Pearson there, I believe, has the rights. You know, he, he 
told me there was this surge in interest, and he just wasn't sure why. But you know, now that you say it, I bet it was our podcast. And I would be more than happy to to continue to promote Dark Shadows if if they just yeah you know, they send me a free box set. You know, we'll talk Dark Shadows every month. There you go. There you go. So in that little uh, talk, I mentioned something about old business. So that's something we do every month during our episode in our meeting is correct the mistakes we made the month before or answer questions we didn't know. Yes, we don't do mistakes. No, just yes. Unanswered questions. Yes, yes. You know what? I'm just going to insert here. This feels odd to me for some reason. I'm so exhausted from Halloween. We both did the 31 days. We congratulations, man. We, we both every day posted something. It is a task. And I think if, if, if you've never done it before, you think, oh, this is, you watch movies all the time. There's a difference from watching a movie because once the movie's over with, then you, you know, pull out the disc, you put the next one in and, but then actually doing a, a post a day. I know that there is someone and I, I, one of the pages on Facebook they have a big marathon of movies, and the sheer amount of movies that they watch is insane. I wish I could remember this person's name because he's done it in years past. He watched 142 movies, and that is down from his record <laughs> of 165 last year. Wow. Now, he didn't write about any of them, but just watching that amount is insane. When you write, when you're watching all these movies and you're writing, it is a task. And so, yes, congratulations to you as well. We made it through. And, and you reach that point. I had fatigue on Halloween night. I had to watch a few more lighthearted Halloween stuff. And, uh, I, yeah, I'm kind of at the point of like, you know, I'm going to watch some non-horror films. I know that's sacrilege. but And horror is definitely something that, I, you know, in sci-fi I watch all the time. But you do reach that point. November 1st, you're like... I'm going to watch a musical or something just to kind of lighten the mood a little. Yeah, Rich texted me Halloween night. What are you going to watch tonight? And I hadn't even thought of it because of being so concerned about the the daily thing and watching movies and writing about them. I, you know, I just wanted to like watch TV or something and not have to really think about what I was watching. Well, so. you, and I got to say, you had a, a really cool way of approaching your your blog this year, the traveling around the world. I mean, that's something that, I mean, there's every a lot of people do the countdown to Halloween. A lot of people do this. And, you know, I've done themes in years past, like the Boris Karloff, you know, where I did a Boris Karloff movie a day and Bela Lugosi. And those were a lot of fun. And, you know, this year I did some pseudo themes, you know, I've Vincent Price for a week and the Cheney family for a week. Yours was, was also kind of a month long commitment. And so I know how I felt when I got to the end of, of Karloff. I had started off with his earliest films and ended with this later, you know, films that he made in Mexico. And I, it was fatigue, but also accomplishments. So I'm sure you're, you traveled around the entire world. <laughs> yes, so not only am I exhausted from writing, but you know, I have jet lag as well. But <laughs> it kind of worked out well because I had knew that Mexico was going to be at the end, and there's been several movies I've been wanting to watch from Mexico, particularly El Vampiro. So I always had that to look forward to. Thank God I didn't like end up in Greece or uh, one of those other countries where the movies were just awful. Uh, Turkey, I think. I don't know. But well, anyway, so back to to old business. So these are things left hanging, and everyone has been losing sleep from the last episode. So we talked about uh, Chris and Cin- Cindy Franklin's podcast, Supermates, and they do the House of Frankenstein over the course of October. They pair a 
classic movie with a comic book. We talked about, they did a Creature from the Black Lagoon episode, couldn't exactly remember the name and didn't know the issue of Fantastic Four that they paired with it, but it was Fantastic Four issue 97, and the correct name of the story was The Monster from the Lost Lagoon. And we also didn't know, meaning I didn't know, what comic they paired with Twins of Evil. Uh, It was a two-part story called Night of the Bat, That was in Superman, the Man of Steel, number 14 in 1992, and then Superman, number 70 in 1992. Mm. And this was actually a Superman team up with Robin, who at that time was Tim Drake. Shifting gears to the Mimiverse and Christopher R. Mim, uh, we talked about his movie House of Ghosts, and I asked about the subliminal messages and what that was all about. I kind of did a little bit of research, and we assumed it was a William Castle gimmick, and that's what he was paying homage to, but... Not exactly. Uh, I mean, in 13 Ghosts, William Castle did have a thing called Illusiono. It was a supernatural viewer, but that was more for him to see the ghosts that appeared. When you put those on, you could see uh, the ghosts. They were kind of like 3D glasses. But there was another movie about the same time called Terror in the Haunted House from 1958. Let me just read the tag from the movie poster. I think it'll explain it all. The first picture in Psychorama. The Fourth Dimension Using Subliminal Communication. Wow. That, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but that's at least a movie from about the same era as William Castle that did indeed have subliminal messaging throughout the movie. Well, that's a movie, I'm familiar with the title, but I've never seen it. So that's that really intrigues me now. That's something I'm going to have to add to the list. Yeah, we have done it. We found another movie that you haven't seen. Look at the wall <laughs> behind you. I, there are movies on this wall. I still haven't seen every Hammer film. There are still some Hammer films I haven't seen. So yes, there are movies I haven't seen. You know, I haven't either, but I'm not in a big rush because when I finish them, then... I won't have any yes. more to watch. I mean, I, I will rewatch them, but, you know, there won't be anything I'm very, new after that. the same way. It's like hammer films are, are so wonderful. It's like, you know, it's like sometimes you come across a title and it's like, ah, I want to see that. I Like El Vampiro and I got a copy of it and it's like, now I want to see some of these others. And there's other things. It's like, I'm, you know, I'm added to the list. I'll make my way through it. Donovan's Brain was one of those. It's, it had been on my list uh, for quite a long time. And so finally worked my way through it. I had the DVD, and, and I think, oh gosh, I picked it up at a closing Hollywood video store, if that tells you how long I've had it. They had a ton of midnight movie DVDs. Hmm. I hit it at right just the right time. They were selling off all their stock. It went on a Saturday afternoon, and their horror section really hadn't been touched yet. And it was just like they had a plethora of midnight movies. Is and that the, the double features? Uh, some of them were. Is uh, that one? This one was not. Oh, okay. Like I, I, in fact, right here to my right is Abominable Doctor Fives. Was another one that I picked up there. Uh, I just got another copy of that recently, but the copy I have here to my right, which you can't see, this is wonderful mm-hmm, podcasting, mm-hmm. was from that same video store, Hollywood Video, and it was just a single copy. So, uh, yeah, you have those those movies that you, you, as soon as you become aware of it, you want to rush out and, and see it. Other times, it's like you add it to the list, and you work your way through, and eventually you'll see it. Still in the Mimiverse, but in the reality of the Mimiverse, uh, we weren't sure where Dr. Bob Tesla was based. Uh, He's, what would you call him? Well, he's the horror host of the Mimiverse, right? Yes, and he he does other work. He's a a horror host, correct? Yes. I believe so, yeah. Well, he's from Columbus, Ohio. Okay. 
and his nurse, whose name we didn't know, and we were quickly corrected on Facebook that how could we forget that? Do you remember now her name? Oh my God. <laughs> it, <laughs> nurse Faratu. Yes, Nurse Faratu. Yes, yes. Well, and this I, is you something know, there's we don't... something about Nurse Faratu, perhaps that distracts us from her name. What? What would that be? I don't know. I have no clue. I have no clue. Don't remember the context, but I had a note. What is flesh or fantasy? So we must have brought this movie up. And actually, if this is what we were talking about, it's actually a movie called Flesh and Fantasy. Mm -hmm. It's a 1943 anthology, three occult tales with ironic and romantic twists. And one of them's an Oscar Wilde story. So I have that, actually. Uh, huh. Maybe that's not what we were talking about. I, I know that... I mean, I've seen it once, and I have it in my collection, and I'm glad that I have it. That said, I don't know, unless we would do it for the for the podcast at some point, I don't know that I would necessarily be drawn to watch it again. It is a hard movie to find. I'm not sure that when I purchased it, it was a bootleg copy. Sorry. Uh, I, no, it's not a bootleg copy. You're uh, usually not that blunt. Usually yes, we say yeah. ulterior well, sources or yes, something like yes. that. But uh, but I do think it I think it may be available now through the Universal Vault series because it is a universal film. It is it's it's connection to, to the horror genre is tenuous at best. I mean, they, the the supernatural aspects of it are are low key. Hmm. But it's it wasn't bad. It just wasn't something I would be drawn to again. Yeah, the the thing I read about it said it was Hollywood's attempt at making an art film. Is it kind of artsy? I could see that. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Uh, we wondered about old old dark house if it was coming out on Blu-ray or we knew that it had, and just have the details and that it did come out just a couple weeks ago on October twenty fourth. It's part of the Cohen Film Collection. Mm -hmm. Not sure what that is, but it's a new four K restoration and it's on Amazon right now for seventeen ninety nine. So that's the original Old Dark House. You know, I still have the Kino version, uh, the Snapcase version. I didn't think it was that bad. I mean, I, I don't know. For me, sometimes when I watch these old movies, I don't mind the, the the creakiness to the film print. Sometimes. Now that said, having just rewatched the restored version of Bela Lugosi's Dracula, it is beautiful print, and it is leaps and bounds better than some of the earlier prints that I watched when I was younger. So it is always nice. But sometimes, like, I haven't upgraded my, my copy of White Zombie. Uh, I like my copy of White Zombie. I'm probably never going to upgrade it. Nosferatu, again, having just seen the restored print, I definitely need to upgrade my public domain copy of Nosferatu because it is unwatchable compared to what they've got out there. So I think it depends on the film. I haven't seen a, a compare and contrast on how different the Blu-ray version looks. And I know there's a site out there... Um, it's called DVD Beaver, and they do a, which sounds much worse than it is, <laughs> folks. It's a really good site because they do a compare and contrast on, on releases, and you can, you can they will have like multiple screen prints, and you can see how, how the Blu-ray version differs from the original DVD version. And I've used that to determine, am I going to upgrade my copy of this film, you know, or am I going to be happy with what I've got? So hopefully they'll do that for the old dark house. I love Boris Karloff. And if the print is a significant improve, uh, improvement over the previous release, I might consider buying the Blu-ray. And what does that mean? New 4k restoration? Does that mean if you have a 4k TV, it's just going to jump right out at you? Or is it something you can notice just from a regular Blu-ray I think player? that's interesting when they say 4K restoration, but then don't release it on 4K, mm. ultra high def. 
I think 4K is the new buzzword because it's not available on ultra high def 4K. So if you buy it on Blu-ray, it's a standard Blu-ray, which theoretically shouldn't be as good as an ultra high def. Yeah, I think that's just a buzzword that a lot of these companies are starting to use because 4K, oh my gosh. And, I, you know, it's is it an improvement over the previous DVD releases? I'm sure it probably is. The question is, how much of an improvement? And, and finally, and goodness, now that I look at these notes, what in the world were we talking about in the last episode? We wondered when It's a Wonderful Life was released and when Miracle on 34th Street were released. And the answer to that, for whatever context it came from, was 1946 for It's a Wonderful Life and 1947 for Miracle on 34th Street. I think we weren't sure. I knew. I think we knew the time frame. Why roughly. were we talking about Christmas movies, though, on a classic <laughs> horror podcast? I, I, I have no clue. It's probably one of my tangents that I go off on. I, I will take full credit for the holiday message in October. Gosh, I think we have a little bit of time left, so uh, let's talk about our, our movies and our books and our radio shows. Donovan's Brain. Donovan's Brain, yes. Um, all of this stems from a novel. The novel written in 1942 by someone you might have heard of before, Kurt Siodmak, uh, who wrote a little screenplay the previous year for a lesser-known film called The Wolfman with Lon Chaney Jr., Kurt Siodmak was a published author, but he was also a, a screenplay writer. Definitely left his mark on uh, on Hollywood with The Wolfman. I mean, do you need to do anything more? The Wolfman's a classic. I was interested when I was doing a little bit of research to see the movies that he worked on and what some of those other novels that he wrote had been added, you know, adapted into films like The Beast with Five Fingers. He wrote that novel, and it was adapted into a film with Peter Lorre, which is one of the classic, you know, disembodied hand movies. And this was an original novel, not a novelization of the movie? I That's a good question. I, I you know, I don't think that they did novelizations of movies back then. Mm, I think they did. Then that's guess a good that's a good question. Did he? Well, and I only asked because I, I did the research too, and I I couldn't really tell. It looks like Donovan's Brain was his maybe his second novel. I think the one before that was called uh, FP Doesn't Answer or something like that, which I don't think was a movie. It was probably original novel. Uh, and then Black Friday, which was also a movie. Yes. Uh, so, But I, I couldn't, I, I don't know, I didn't go far enough to find out if they were all original novels or if he did any novels. Well, because I know that like <clears throat> some of the other novels that he wrote, Writers to the Stars which was also a movie. And then he wrote something in 81 called Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, which, and now at that point, I would think, is that an adaptation of the movie? Clearly the movie came first. You know, as far as like original screenplays, he did some classics, The Invisible Man Returns starring Vincent Price, Black Friday with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, The Magnetic Monster, uh, Bride of the Gorilla, and uh, a Ray Harryhausen film called Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. He was involved in all those. Donovan's Brain, I, I would have to say, though, is probably the novel he is most remembered for. I could be wrong on that, but Donovan's Brain generated three you know, film adaptations. Now, 
there hasn't been a, a straightforward you know, adaptation of Donovan's Brain on film, at least, since the 1960s. But I do feel like Donovan's Brain, the, the novel, which caused, of course, a radio adaptation and three screen adaptations, had to have been in part responsible for several of the other disembodied brain disembodied movies. brain you know the 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 random big head movies you know that we had that uh, the late Vince Rotolo at, at the B movie cast loved those movies they saved Hitler's brain the brain that wouldn't die uh, the head I mean I had to have to think that they it somehow inspired that because if you look back prior to 1942 did we have any disembodied brain movies not really I mean we talked about there's the idea of, of transferring a brain into a man's body, which, of course, was Frankenstein. Mary Shelley had that idea. I think they're kind of interconnected in a way because Donovan's brain, I have no idea on the inspirations for the novel, but the concept of, of a brain living you know, after death had to have been inspired in some way by Frankenstein, especially when you look at the rest of Kurt Siodmak's work. Clearly you know, in the horror genre. So there had to have been some, some inspiration there. Uh, and so a lot of these, these brain movies and, and disembodied head movies, I mean, they all kind of go hand in hand, but Donovan's brain is a little different in the fact that from the, it, it started out as a novel, res, became a, a radio play and then three films. And I don't think as you look at any of the others, I mean, most of these were original screenplays based on ideas maybe from from other things or other popular movies at the time but none were straightforward based on a novel and th there haven't been remakes of a lot of those stories i mean there's versions of them but we haven't had straightforward remakes donovan's brain was kind of this little mini franchise of sorts and in, in the dark bowels of the horror genre that has been kind of forgotten because the idea of course we know as Science comes along and we know how the brain works and stuff. I mean, it becomes pretty fantastic to think that a brain could, of course, do all these things. But even in the 1940s, that was probably pushing the limits. But it was it was fantasy. It was excitement. And I don't know if you could pull off a movie like this today without probably having to expand on the idea. I think you'd have to make it a little bit more science-based for people to at least be to buy into the idea. Yeah, and the thing that strikes me about the whole thing, other than the concept, which is heavy sci-fi, there's not really horror at all. It goes then pretty much into either a mystery or a crime story. I would think it, that's sort of a quaint approach, I think. And I any like you said, if if they were to remake it, it would almost surely go off into the horrific aspects of uh, you know, the the brain possessing someone and for them to murder or, or kill or become a monster or something. But these are sort of, I don't know, it was odd to me. It was low-key, it was, it was low more so science fiction. I guess the horror element comes in, the fact that you're dealing with a disembodied brain. And, and you had some murders and some, but it, it definitely was more of a, of, of a crime drama of sorts which by the time we get to the third film was definitely very heavy crime noir but 
we're ahead of ourselves. Yeah, it's hard to know where to to jump on this in on this. We haven't read the book, correct? Yes, but we have read summaries of it, and we listen to the radio show. We watch the three movies. The basic framework of the story is the same, and from what I can tell, it's the same in the book. Do you want to just kind of go through those points, and then as we talk about each movie, we can kind of spring off on how they treated it differently? Yeah, because there's definitely every movie kind of it, tweaked the story and the characters around a little bit, depending or even created new characters that were maybe based on on other ideas. Which is definitely Lady and the Monster, I think, is the one that perhaps differs the most from from the other adaptations. But the basic story is the the, the main the, the character that, of course, stretches across all is Dr. Patrick Corey. Although he's in a different role in he, some of the different movies. He is in a different role. That is correct. Lady and the Monster really kind of tweaks things a little bit. Dr. Dr. Patrick Corey uh, in the original novel is um, a middle-aged physician, and he's looking at... How to Keep a Brain Alive. And in the original novel, his experiments are subsidized by his wealthy wife. And I can't tell from from what I read about the novel itself that the wife is really that much a part of the movie as she is in some of the other storylines. It seems like, and she certainly is not wealthy in any of the other adaptations. She is, you know, if she's present, she is certainly there with him, but I don't think any of the other adaptations really touched on. No, not at all. And and it's not always his wife. One time it's uh, his, I think, just an assistant. One time it's his ward. In fact, maybe in only one of the stories is it his wife. Well, and that's, I'm trying to think now, I don't, I don't think there, there is no reference to that character. I think in the brain, there really isn't. I mean, there's an assistant, but right. Yeah. So essentially, uh, as our story uh, develops, there is the character. So they all, they all start out, I think, with some type of monkey experiment. Yes. And yes. that has limited results. Either the brain's too small, they can't keep it alive for a certain point. And, you know, there's hints of going beyond that and perhaps getting a human subject. That comes about in different ways, but basically that's there. And then what happens? Opportunity falls in their lap. He lives in the desert, and that's that's a, a, a plot that is relatively present, I think, in the first few film adaptations. Definitely not, I don't think, in the third and final British adaptation, which obviously for reasons they're not going to have a desert in England that I'm aware of. Your, uh, your character, again, in most of these adaptations, William H. Donovan. He is a multimillionaire, and his plane crashes near the home of Dr. Corey, and Dr. Corey uh, is essentially asked in one form or another to try to save uh, William H. Donovan and unable to do so, but he thinks, I've got this brain. I shall take the brain and see and do experimentation on it, which is, of course, obviously unethical, and there has to be a certain you know measure of lies and deceit to make sure that no one knows that he has the brain of William H. Donovan, and as he puts the brain in a glass tank, he is able to essentially keep the brain of William Donovan alive. Through the, the process of the experimentation, the brain begins to have control over Dr. Corey. Dr. Corey has an assistant present in most of these films, and, and in most of the versions, the assistant is Dr. Schratt, 
who is, again, depending on the version you're listening to, in most cases, he's against the idea of the experimentation. His level of competence or the, the, the importance of the character varies from adaptations. But Dr. Shred is, there's always some type of other medical doctor. Dr. Corey is never by himself. There's always somebody that he's working with to one degree or another. As the movie progresses, the brain continues to control Dr. Corey more and more and is getting Dr. Corey to do things that he normally wouldn't do. Eventually, there's and there's always signs of when Donovan begins to overpower Dr. Corey. In the radio adaptation that we'll talk about in a second, you know, it's it's through the use of a word sure, which is one of the last words that, that Donovan says in the, in that version. And another, it's the tapping of his thumb. So there's certain things, or in this 53 movie version, it's pain in his kidneys. So you kind of see he's walk, he walks with a limp and he kind of holds his side or holds his back. And you know, yeah, that's not Dr. Corey. That's, that's William H. Donovan. And um, I think consistently across all of them, it, the first moment that you see the brain take over is he picks up a pen to write and he puts it in his right hand and then his left hand takes it and signs the name. I think that was in every That was movie. in every version. Even though the name Donovan wasn't present in the 62 film, it was still the being able to do the signature, which allows him to kind of, depending upon the story, either acquire some of Donovan's funds or open some doors into the investigation, which is a bigger part of the 62 version. Yeah, he becomes embroiled in some type of intrigue in each one. Sometimes it's a murder mystery. Sometimes you find out Donovan was a real jerk and wasn't really as rich or hid his money. But for some reason, Dr. Corey will, in essence, take the role of the dead Donovan and most of the time try to do no good with it. In the original novel, uh, Dr. Schratt, of course, helps Dr. Corey, and uh, they essentially they, they use an axe to break the tank and, and destroy the brain, ending Donovan's uh, influence over Dr. Corey. Yeah, and just before that, I, I thought it was interesting. Each story sort of works in a little twist at the end, and we'll talk about those as we go to each. But, you know, that's just sort of part of the formula, getting embroiled in the mystery, the criminal endeavor, solving it, and there's a little twist. And then, yeah, in all the stories, ultimately, um, the brain is destroyed. And I guess I'll say this here, because I think it's also common with all of them. It was just funny to me how... No matter what the story or plot was, at the end, the person that was really the bad guy kind of gets off easily. Yeah. They're, you know, of all the crimes that may have been associated, really the only thing anyone looks into is the fact that they stole a brain, and that is illegal. And sometimes if they did that but used it ultimately for good, they kind of get off light. Or the Dr. Corey will accept his responsibility and happily go off to jail because he knows what he did was wrong. So it, it was kind of interesting. It's like no one's ever really punished at the end That's for true. doing bad. That's true. And that, yeah, that, that's just, that was weird for me. <laughs> so the novel, of course, becomes popular enough in 1942 that it is adapted into a 
radio play, essentially, uh, two years later in 1944. This is The Man in Black, here to introduce this weekly half hour of Suspense. Tonight from Hollywood, we again bring you Mr. Orson Welles in the second of two consecutive performances starring Mr. Welles as the protagonist of Kurt Siodmak's novel, Donovan's Brain. The producer of Suspense and its sponsors, the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California, felt this story so unusual that it merited more than our usual time. So in somewhat of a departure from established radio formulas, we are bringing you the story of Donovan's Brain in two parts. Part one you heard last Thursday, and tonight you will hear part two, the completion of Donovan's Brain. Let's take a look and see what was going on in the world in 1944. Well, obviously, the biggest thing is World War II. And because of the events of, of World War II, radio was was how people got their news. Television was was in its infancy. The, the richest of the rich had television sets. And even back then, all they could see was musical things that might be broadcast specially or something. And it was just something that very, very few people had. Television wouldn't really become a popular medium until 1949 uh, or around that time period. 1944, people got their, their news about the war by reading the newspaper, by listening to the radio, or by watching newsreels at the movie theaters. And radio was, was a way to get, get the news instantly. You didn't have to wait for the morning edition or the evening edition of the newspaper, and you didn't have to wait for a newsreel to come out, you know, sometimes, you know, weeks later. Old-time radio was everything you could hear on radio. You, you would have music programs, soap operas, comedies, dramas, actions, adventures, mysteries, horror films, and there was the show called Suspense. And Suspense was one of the most popular radio shows of the old-time radio genre. Uh, in 1944, um, Suspense um, was was an incredibly popular show. It had launched in 1942, so it was about two years into its run. Suspense actually dated back to uh, 1940, which is something I, you know a lot of people tend to forget. There was a show on CBS that was called Forecast, and it was used to essentially be a pilot for radio shows. And if there was enough interest, then a show would get its own, you know, full-fledged show. Alfred Hitchcock directed an episode of Forecast called The Lodger, which was based on the the popular Jack the Ripper uh, theme that he actually did a movie of in the silent era. It's one of his, uh, well, it really is, I think, his best silent film. And um, it was as as kind of a backdoor pilot to suspense. It became uh, let's do this. Let's is popular. Let's let's make this a weekly show, and it became a show in 1942. By 1944, radio was in full swing, uh, the golden age of old time radio. You had comedy shows like the Jack Benny program, Fibber McGee and Molly, The Great Gildersleeve. You had shows like uh, I believe Escape had started by this point. The Shadow was was incredibly popular. 1944 was the year that the Frank Sinatra shows started. Uh, shows like uh, Boston Blackie, Creeps by Night, which was a popular show for Boris Karloff to do when he was doing Arsenic and Old Lace. He would just walk down the street and, and do some of these radio shows. He was often heard on on uh, a variety of radio programs at this time because he was just right there doing a stage play and he'd just walk right down the street and do <laughs> a lot of radio. Um 
And, you know, on the big screen, um, you know, to kind of compare and contrast, um, we had another version of the, the Lodger was done that year, ironically, Return of the Vampire with Bela Lugosi, which many people consider to be a pseudo-sequel to Dracula 1931. Uh, the Uninvited, which is one of the all-time best ghost stories on, on screen. Uh, there was Double Indemnity, which is a classic. Gaslight, another classic. Laura with Vincent Price. There was Going My Way, the big screen adaptation of Arsenic and Old Lace with Cary Grant. So a lot of these, uh, you can kind of get a taste for what was... You know what was happening uh, on on the uh, in the world. Of course, everyone was concerned about World War II, which was kind of nearing the end. It was in its dying days, but there was a lot of activity going on. And so, to listen to old time radio, people would escape from the realities of the day. And suspense, in particular, was one of the all time best shows because it lasted for twenty years. Wow! Uh, it launched in nineteen forty two and was. One of the very last radio shows in 1962, uh, by which point, you know, it, it, if you aren't familiar enough with old-time radio, you think, were there still radio shows being done in 62? There were a handful of them, and Suspense was one of the very, very last. It did a total of 945 episodes, uh, of which, ironic and surprisingly, more than 900 still exist, which is amazing, because a lot of old-time radio shows, there's periods of time where a lot of those shows simply don't exist anymore. They were on big discs and weren't saved. Uh, there's there's large chunks of the shadow, for example, that simply don't exist anymore. But a large portion of suspense shows did. And they would bring in the biggest stars of the day. Basically, a lot of their stories were, were mystery, horror, ghost stories, crime drama. Uh, again, anything that would give you suspense. <laughs> I was just going to ask, is there a theme there? There do is. they all generate suspense? <laughs> yes, they do. And wait, don't we have to say that the way they say that on the radio show? Don't they pronounce suspense? Suspense, yes. So depending on the era of the show. That, and this was my favorite, too, because uh, you have the Man in Black introduces some of these early episodes. By the time you get towards the end of the run, they kind of lost that that flavor of, of the host that was featured or... Uh, I think the quality of stories greatly decreased by the time they get to the to the dying days of radio. The 1940s, for me, is is when radio was at its best. And Donovan's brain, because it was such a, I'd have to say, it had to be somewhat popular tale of the day for it to be adapted through a radio show, um, was a two part show, which is unheard of back then. You just there, you didn't have that. You would have some shows. Comedy shows would sometimes carry over characters and themes, obviously. But for a anthology series like Suspense, to have a two-part adaptation um, was just something they didn't do. And I don't believe they ever did that again on Suspense. Orson Welles heads the cast and is the role of Dr. Patrick Corey. Now, Orson Welles, of course, had part of his Mercury Theater players in the late 30s. He was the man who did the War of the Worlds broadcast. He was the first true actor to play the character of the Shadow. The Shadow had been a host previously, but in 1937, the Shadow became a full-fledged character. Orson Welles was the original Shadow and was on the air for a year and was actually the very first version of the Shadow that I listened to was Orson Welles. 
by this point in time, I mean, we're getting close to Citizen Kane. I, I can't remember what exact year Citizen Kane was released in. Well, where does this fall, like, as far as War of the Worlds with the Mercury Radio Theater and all that? Was that before this, after War of the this? Worlds was done after he did The Shadow for a year. He did a series called Mercury Theater on the Air. It was a weekly one-hour anthology series. Uh, and in the fall of 1938, he did a, a wonderful adaptation of Dracula, and he did War of the Worlds. And Orson Welles would always... You know, in addition to doing everything, writer, producer, director, he would be casting himself oftentimes in one of the lead roles. And uh, War of the Worlds, yeah, broadcast, you know, in the fall of 1938. So this, of course, comes six years later. The, the Mercury Theater on the Air show is no longer being broadcast. When you go back to, like, what Orson Welles was doing as a radio actor, then he was moving into film. By the time you, you're in this time period, I mean, he was he was beginning to look at at other other ways to express himself and and other projects. Taking on this this two part role of Doctor Corey, Orson Welles is really in his prime in this time period, and uh, you know we could do a whole podcast on Orson Welles, but I think that that based on what we know about the original novel, they did a few things I think that are a little different for the radio play. But really, I think, did a, a pretty good adaptation because you've got Dr. Corey. Essentially, the plot remains very much the same. Dr. Corey attempts to save the life of William H. Donovan, doesn't, saves the brain, and the brain begins to have control over, over Dr. Corey. There's a few tweaks to the overall plot and some of the characters. The wife, Janice, there's no mention of her being wealthy. In fact, she seems a little mousy a little bit in the radio play. I mean, she certainly is a bit subservient, I think, to, to Dr. Corey and inadvertently becomes a bit of an obstacle. And there's this whole, which is actually, I think, one of the key plots in the radio play of Janice getting basically sent off to an insane asylum. Well, and I took that as that, I don't know that my impression was that she was mousy, like you say, uh, yes and no, but I think she wanted to destroy the brain, and that's why he sent her away. Yeah, so I that mean, she wouldn't interfere. Yeah, I, mean, I guess. I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess. Me, I, Mousy was probably not the right term to use there. I mean, she she was certainly a roadblock, but I don't think she was a very strong. She was a very strong woman because she kind of gets herself into a situation where she she doesn't truly understand the nature of how much power Donovan holds over her husband at that point and unfortunately gets sent off to an insane asylum. You've also got the character of, of a son who really isn't in any other, other adaptations mm -hmm. and actually becomes another big roadblock in a way for, for Dr. Corey. I think that, you know, this particular, like I, I said earlier, I just have a strong affinity to this particular adaptation because I was introduced to this, Oh, probably circa 1980. So I was about you know 12 or 13 at the time when I heard this, and I was just it was interesting to hear again a two part story, and again because you're doing this on radio, you've got to do things more audible than visual, and so you couldn't do little hand gestures or stuff. So they change it up a little bit so that the way you can tell is is the use of the word sure sure sure, right. sure 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 which keeps getting played and so when you hear him saying that then you know of course donovan has control and orson wells again being a radio actor was able to 
you knew by the way the tone of his voice and how he could he could almost morph his voice you knew that it was Donovan who was taking over and, and that was Orson Welles's voice it wasn't anybody else's I mean he was that was again being a voice actor he was able to do that and so you know as you're listening to this tale you don't have to see to know that Donovan you can hear it in in his voice and that's something that is not really a big plot point in the other films. I mean, there's certainly mannerisms. There's certainly a, a change of the way that the, the actors, of course, act when Donovan is taking them over. And there is a certain change to their voice, but it's down, it's downplayed because you're looking more of the visual. Uh, yeah. And I think this would be a good time to add that the, the original novel was written as a series of diary entries and that worked really well for the radio show because it's narrated basically with specific dates that everything happens. And uh, Corey is is narrating as if it's a – I didn't think of it as a diary at that point, but maybe just a record of his experiments. That's sort of the structure of the radio show, uh, and, and it works very uh, well for that. And again, that's something that's not picked up in any of the, the movies. There are a couple – or maybe even only one of the others like – uses it very spar you know sparingly one of the movies there was a, a voiceover but certainly not didn't provide the whole structure that was lady and the monster had the voiceover mm-hmm. uh, and then donovan's brain the 53 well, i should say donovan's brain the 53 film version and we'll talk about this in a moment the 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 notes the keeping of notes actually is a ends up being a big big plot point in that None of that is really touched on in the 62 version. I think that, and we listened, ironically, we listened to this on the way back from Minnesota and and uh, checking out the Mimiverse premiere of uh, Demon with the Atomic Brain, which we'll be doing a contest at the end of this program. So another plug for ourselves there. What were your impressions of the radio show? I mean, for, I know that I, I love it, and I'm probably looking at it through rose-colored glasses. And in comparing... It to the story that we know in the other movies. What are your thoughts? I, I liked it a lot. In fact, that Rich asked me before we started what my overall impression was. These aren't particularly my favorite movies, any of them. And I think maybe it's because the radio show sort of set the bar kind of high. I mean, I, I was expecting something different and better. I say better. I don't mean that like as in quality. But I, I just didn't really care for the movies all that much. And I did like the radio show. It's just interesting to me that the things that each one chooses chooses to focus on, mostly in that mystery section of the movie. This, the radio show, may be the closest thing to a horrific scenario. I mean, you mentioned the son. What does Corey do to his son in this movie? He does horrific things to his wife. You know, I mean, he's he's he's, he's a horrific character. I, I think the fact that you've got Orson Welles in the lead role. That was a big thing for the. You got to think at the time, Orson Welles was a big name, and so bringing him in in this big two-part adaptation again, which is something that had never been done on radio, you're 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 putting this on a, on a grand scale. And, and in comparison, none of the other f- film adaptations were a you know like an A film. They were they were a B film at best. And for suspense, suspense was one of the biggest radio shows bringing on one of the biggest stars of the day. This was a quality. And that that feeling survives even through today 
I, I would say since I listened to it and I'm saying I thought it was the best adaptation of all these different mediums. What I'm talking about the sun and make sure I'm right on this at the end, doesn't Corey realize Donovan's goal is to take over the world and how's he going to do that as a disembodied brain in a tank? Doesn't he actually remove his son's yes. brain and transplant Donovan yes. into it so that Donovan can actually go out into the world and, and do his dirty Wh- deeds, which is, which is touched on in the 53 film. A little bit at the very end. There's no brain transfer or anything like that, but it's touched upon. Oh, right, got, right. That's cool. Too. I like that. He's got bigger plans. Yeah, and and yeah. I mean, that's that. Which it, that that you're right. That's a that's a horrific element that's not present in any of the other adaptations. And I wish it would have been. I think that would have been. Great yeah, to I think see. that's what I was expecting. I was expecting some horror aspects. You know, instead of just I don't want to say simple, but. You know, they are, I don't know if noir is the right word, but really they are crime stories. I mean, basically, and I was expecting, you know, something horrible. I was expecting a what happened in the radio show. Well, and I think that, you know, looking at the the plot for the book, that's, that's that doesn't appear to be something that was covered in the book either. So that seems to be something that's original for the radio app. Now, do we know who wrote the radio app? I, I have who produced and directed a, a man named William Spire or Spear. I couldn't find who wrote it. <laughs> I don't know if they mentioned. Usually they will mention who adapts, but it's probably just one of their staff writers, to hmm. be honest with you. I mean, that's usually the case with these, is that many times they, they, the writers for these radio shows, and in suspense in particular, they had a staff of writers and. Uh, oftentimes, if they did an adaptation, you know, on on a popular story, yeah, it was just part of their staff writer. So it wasn't going to be anybody necessarily well known, unless you're, you know, familiar with old time radio. There might be particular writers who were very prolific on certain shows, and Suspense had their their staff writers, so to speak. So hmm. that's a pretty bold addition to the story. Uh, it is. It, so it, I, it, I just it wonder if they're. I'll have to look. I'm, I'm just well, curious. I don't know if they had those liberties to do that, or if it was like, okay, we need to, you know, give this some punch. It, it just, it seems, and especially since none of the other movies pick up on that, I'm just real curious, you know, how that got into the radio show. I think that you know, there's probably a certain amount of liberties as you look at the other films. They they all kind of you know do certain tweaks and stuff. But yeah, you're right. This this was that was a pretty big addition and horrific really you know and it, it's it's and it really you know this is a movie that didn't necessarily end on a happy note either i mean or the radio adaptation kind of ended on a down note a little bit i remember as we were listening to that you know this is kind of like i hadn't really picked up on that i was like eh, you know it's yeah the, the there's no no runaway brain going to conquer the world at, at this point but it, it did seem to be uh, a bit of a, of a downbeat ending oh yeah and that contradicts what i said earlier i, I all the movies, I think, have that lighter sort of ending that I'm talking about. But yeah, this one, they go in and they find the bodies of the father and the son, both down on the floor, and brain matter splashed everywhere, and then a larger piece of brain still in the tank. So, yeah, that's pretty down. No one. Well, well I don't even think the uh, the wife gets out of the insane asylum, I believe, but. I mean, obviously, you know, she's going to find her husband and son dead. I mean, she's she's not going to, 
you know, be in good shape either. So yeah, kind of a downbeat ending, which <laughs> is with these uh, suspense in particular. Usually, you know, if there's a bad guy, the bad guy is going to get his in the end. That's just kind of classic old time radio. The, the the bad guys don't win. You know, the good guys always win. But you know, when the bad guys lose, oftentimes they they lose in a pretty big fashion. You know, and and you can listening to some of these old time radio shows. Sometimes there's some pretty pretty dark stories. I I recall Dragnet, of course, was a radio show that was, you know, adapted for television and ran concurrently. And a lot of times the television episodes would be based on radio episodes, which was also common with other shows like uh what is it, Have Gun Will Travel did the same thing. A lot of other shows did. I think even Gunsmoke uh, adapted some of its earliest episodes based on radio episodes. There's an episode of Dragnet, I believe entitled 22 Rifle for Christmas. It's a pretty dark Christmas tale, of essentially about two boys that end up missing. And spoiler alert here, one boy opens up a Christmas present early and it's a rifle and goes off playing with his friend and kills his friend. So this, this whole half-hour episode is dealing with, you know... Friday and 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 his partner going off trying to find out you know where is this boy you know there's blood splatters and this and that you know and you've got hysterical parents and in the end the father of the the dead son gives the Christmas presents that he was going to give to his son to the little boy who killed his son because he felt like that's what his son would do and he didn't hold any animosity and there's a tense moment where the father is demanding that he wants to go visit the parents and they're like, Oh, this is not a good idea. But Friday says, we'll go along with it. It's, it's intense. Mm. And they adapted that for television, kept it pretty consistent. It's so you had some dark elements to classic radio. If you, if you, if you look at some of these, these stories that ironically, a lot of times they wouldn't touch on, on, on television later because it'd be too dark. And that, that's one question I had for you, because basically the three movie versions are a decade each apart each. Yeah. 40, 50, 40, middle 40, middle 50, middle 60s. What role did the era take, do you think, in the tone that the the story took? And how, what I'm getting at here in 44, did the bad guy have to be punished? Was that the product of the times that if you're bad, you you need to be punished? I think you still had that in the 40s and even the 50s. I think, you know, good versus evil. It, it, when you get to the 60s, things get a little bit darker, you know, and and a little more twisted at times. And and you don't really see that in the 62 version because it's that they take a lot of liberties with the story. But I think even, you know, the 53 version is really where there's the idea that Dr. Corey has, has done some bad things and the way that at ends, you know, certainly gives the implication of, well, he wasn't really that bad because he wasn't really in control. Donovan was the bad guy, but there's some, there's some loose ends that need to be picked up, but he's probably going to be okay. It, it is interesting that, you know, that, that the radio play did such a, a downbeat Ending and I and I it, I wish the film versions would have maybe gone that route, but I don't know. Probably only the '62 film version would have been able to pull off an ending like that. I don't think you would have seen that in a '44 or a '53 film without there having to be some type of hope at the end of 
at the end of it all. And, and I, I don't know how you would have done that on the big screen uh, for what was expected. Like you said, there were certain standards that you had to uphold and, and always has to be somewhat of a, of a upbeat ending to even the darkest of films. So anything else to say about the radio show before we move on to the first movie version? Best part about it is that you can listen to it for free. It is public domain uh, and the and the quality of the of the uh, print is out there on print, but the audio is is great. You can get it on YouTube, archive.org. As we talked about before we started recording, it was released on LP in I forget the year, but eighty two. Eighty two and it won what a Grammy Award? Grammy for Best Spoken Word Album. Which is bizarre because it was forty years old at that point, but Radio shows were were being rediscovered around that time period. A lot of shows were being put onto record and vinyl and and cassette tape for the first time. There was a resurgence of of classic radio in the seventies, where a lot of radio stations would begin playing these old shows, and so a lot of people were discovering these shows for the first time decades before they'd be available for free on the internet. So uh, that may have been your only way to listen to it is to buy a vinyl record, but now it's everywhere. And, and I highly recommend that you listen to it. it. It is by far the best adaptation. I think compared to the others we're going to talk about and it's free. You can't get much better than that. Yeah, I agree with all of those points. Now, as we talk about lady and the monster, which is the first version, you know, that actually came out, a month before the radio show. It would have been probably in production, I would assume, longer than the radio show. The radio uh, plays, I mean, they, they were producing shows every week, so they would have ideas a few weeks in advance, but really the production wouldn't start until typically a week before. So you, you can't say that one influenced the other. I mean, they really were on parallel tracks and I mean unless somebody got the script of Lady of the Monster which doesn't seem to be apparent anyway because they are so different they're not I think it's more likely that that the book probably influenced the radio show as opposed to the film because again I think if the film had influenced then the radio play would have been much more of an adaptation of the movie Whereas, you know, it seems to be more so on the core story of the novel and then with some additional tweaks added to it to fit into the format of the radio show. Yeah. Our story begins on the edge of a lonely desert in Arizona. For it was there the brilliant scientist Professor Franz Muller chose to live and work in a great fantastic place he called the castle. Until I have proven that the animal and human brain can be kept alive even after death. I shall try and try again until I succeed or shall die in the attempt. You already know you can keep the brain alive. I merely think I do. I've never succeeded yet. And if I could prove that, what do I know about the brain itself? after its body is dead? Could it be made to feel? To hear, perhaps? Or to express itself in some way? To contact the living? And if you did find out, 
what would be the benefit. You ask me that? Would it not be the achievement of our times to keep the brain of great thinkers, scientists, inventors, authors, statesmen alive, to derive benefit from their wisdom and their thinking power, even after their death, to make them literally immortal? Lady and the Monster. My first question, why why is it called Lady and the Monster? I, I have a theory, uh, which really has nothing to do with brains or, or Donovan or anything, but I'm just curious if you know why. My you know, best guess on this is based on the fact that the film stars Vera Ralston as the character of Janice Farrell. Well, which is, you know, again, kind of a take on the name of Janice being the wife of, of uh, Dr. Corey. But in here, she is simply a, a nurse. She's a ward of sorts. Vera Ralston was a very... I guess, a well-accomplished figure skater from Czechoslovakia. She Uh, sure wasn't an actress. No, she was not. Uh, She she competed at the 1936 European Figure Skating Championships, placed 15th, which, okay, is not great, but it's the championships. I mean, I didn't place 15th, and I don't (laughs) think you could either, so give her credit where credit's due. She was at the 1936 Olympics, so she had to have been one of the best figure skaters in the world. She placed 17th there. She ended up placing 7th in the 1937 European Figure Skating Championship, so she greatly improved. And then she left figure skating. As a little side note, before I kind of go into the reasons why I think the movie was called (laughs) Lady and the Monster, she actually met and insulted Adolf Hitler, supposedly. At the 36 Olympics, Adolf Hitler met her and asked her if she would skate for for Germany, uh, if she would uh, skate for the swastika. And she said uh, no. And in fact, she she desired to skate on the swastika and did not make uh, Mr. Hitler very happy. So she eventually would, would become an American citizen. And from what I read, she was dating a film executive. Yep. And uh, Herbert J. Yates. You know, Hollywood, of course, has been a, a dark, scandalous place for a long time. If you keep up on modern events, it was that's nothing new. It's just now making mainstream. Back then, if you dated a film exec in Hollywood and you were an attractive woman, you were going to get a part in a film. And that's what I think happened here, is that he wanted to... I can't remember the name. Who was the name? Uh, Herbert J. Yates. Uh, I, I don't know Mr. Yates. I've never heard of him, but he uh, clearly wanted to give uh, a film for his girlfriend to participate in, and I think that's where Lady and the Monster comes from. She, you know, when you watch her performance in this film, for what it's worth, it's interesting to note that she didn't speak English. No. Nope. She speaks all of her lines phonetically. She doesn't know anything that she is saying. Uh, she probably knew a little, but she didn't speak English. And so her performance, of course, is stilted at best. And she gets top billing in this film, which is really disturbing <laughs> when you consider the fact that her two co-stars, now Richard Arlen plays the character of Dr. Patrick Corey, and Eric von Stroheim plays Professor Franz Mueller. Von Stroheim one of the greatest actors of the silent era. Um, he, of course, was in. He was a silent film star and director, The Great Gabo, Foolish Wives, Greed, 
Now, by this time, his his star had certainly, you know, dipped a little bit. He wasn't uh, the top-level actor or director that he once was, clearly. But for him to take second billing to a figure skater in her, really, her feature film debut... Very sad. I, I can't imagine that uh, Eric von Stroheim was was happy with that. Supposedly, the the director of this film, which I don't have in front of me, but George Sherman. Uh, Mr. Sherman was was in fact because this was I think from Republic Pictures, if I believe. Uh, he had such a horrible working experience with Vera Ralston that he quit the film studio in fear that he would have to work with her again because he knew she was dating the executive. <laughs> that gives you an idea of, of, of her performance in this film. Lady of the Monster is certainly a, is an odd title, uh, you know, and why they didn't want... To, and the only reason is, is Vera Walston's performance. That's why they didn't use the name Donovan's Brain, which is in itself a travesty. Well, and the way I make it fit is that so first of all, the primary doctor is Franz Mueller and Corey is the assistant, even though Corey still will be the one that makes the connection yes. with Donovan's brain. But my God, Mueller treats her horribly. He's, I believe, secretly in love with her. He is. And yeah, his yeah. other... Young, and, and she's his ward. Right. So, um, which is disturbing in its own right. Uh, yeah, Professor Mueller is... He's an ass. Let's so just... he's the monster and she's the lady. That's kind of how I made that. I, yeah, that, 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 that would be, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's clearly Vera Ralston dating the executive is why the movie is titled that way. But yeah, he's, he's definitely the monster in this film. I, not a likable character at all. Almost, in my mind, I think he, his unlikability was too extreme. It deterred from my enjoyment of the film. Uh, so Corey is his assistant, played by Richard Arlen. Um, do you have any of Harlan's credits there? He's well, a familiar name, isn't he? He is a familiar name. He starred in Wings, the 1927 film, the first film to be uh, the Best Picture of the Year award. He did a lot of B-work, uh, lots of uh, TV westerns. He starred in a series of action comedy films with uh, Andy Devine, who was uh, a popular character actor, I guess, at, at the time. And, uh, you know, I have to say this about Vera Ralston. You know, she did star in other films, none of which are memorable, except for one. She actually was a supporting character in The Fighting Kentuckian in 1950, which is a John Wayne, I don't want to call it Western, because it takes place really pre-Western era, but, uh, yeah, a historical Western of sorts. Uh, that film is is unique as well because it also starred Oliver Hardy uh, in one of his very few solo appearances, and the only one you know prior after, of course, he paired up with Stan Laurel. Laurel and Hardy never broke up. They did hit a few periods where you know they weren't making films, but they remained a duo. They never never parted ways until Oliver Hardy's death. But this is, is his most, most well-known film that he did without Stan Laurel after they paired. And he really only did I, one or two other films. He did a movie called Zenobia, which was – he was paired up with another uh, silent film comedian, Harry Langdon, if I'm correct. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen that. But it was never intended to be a new pairing. It was just a contractual obligation because – 
Uh, Oliver Hardy was still obligated to one more film, and Stan Laurel had already fulfilled his obligations. Stan Laurel did a stint during this time period where he was producing B-Western films. A little bit of odd Laurel and Hardy trivia there for you. But she's actually in that film, The Fighting Kentuckian, which is probably the only other well-known film that she did. Uh, Richard Arlen, of course, was, was again, he's a more well-known actor, and, and Eric von Stroheim was. Either one of them should have got top billing over Vera Ralston, but they weren't dating the film execs. So, so she is the, the girlfriend of Dr. Corey in this movie, uh, which makes Franz Mueller, I guess, a little bit jealous or... Makes him that contributes to him being such a bad guy. I he think in certain, the way that he yeah, treats her, he does certain things to try to keep Doctor Corey busy so that he doesn't spend time with Janice and and uh, yeah, he's just a bad guy. Yeah. So this movie brings some new elements into the story. Possibly they came from the book, but elements that would be familiar in the other movies. That this is, I think, the first time we've seen them. One of them, the primary one, is that there is somebody uh, that gets in his way, and I'm not talking about keeping the brain alive. I'm talking about keeping Donovan from getting his way in whatever scheme he's trying to do. And in each of the movies, this person, he knocks off at, at some point. Here, it's one of the most... Well, it's okay because he doesn't succeed, but it's one of the most grim because it's a child <laughs> that he's trying to, to knock off. The The crime or in this story is there's a man named Roger Collins, Dark Shadows, Roger Collins, <laughs> um, who's in prison for murder. And, and Donovan, as Corey, his mission is to get this guy out of jail. And we don't really know why. That's part of the mystery. Well, there is a young woman, a girl, whose testimony is preventing that from happening, and she will not recant on her testimony. So Donovan slash Corey is going to knock her off. And that's a pretty chilling scene when uh, I believe he has Janice in the car with him, and Donovan sort of takes over, and he guns the car for that little girl. Which is actually something that that we... It is actually a plot thread in the novel. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, that's which is actually as we're talking, it's like I think I remember reading about uh. that. There is, um, uh, and I don't know exactly how it takes place in, in the course of the novel, but there's a young girl who who stands in the way of his plans, and Donovan wants to eliminate her, and so that is probably where they picked oh, up that okay. that little that little thread. So I guess do we want to do spoilers and say what the I think so. Yeah. Okay, so the the thing here is that this Roger Collins it was Donovan's son, and he was charged with murder and, and committed, but Donovan is really the one that committed the murder, and I guess he thinks by freeing his son, since Donovan's not really around, he can get away with he can get away with murder, because yeah. uh, who who are they going to arrest since he's dead? That is the, is the gist there all along. You're really wondering, why does he care about this guy in prison? And turns out that that's why. That's kind of the little twist at the end of this one. Again, taking, the, I think, a few liberties with the, with the, the key story, uh, the primary story. I mean, I'll offer up my thoughts on the film. You know, this is my second time viewing it. I, I got this many years ago not even knowing that it was a take on Donovan's brain. I was just, you, you know, I'm on eBay looking at film titles, and oh, Lady of the Monster, 1944, not available anywhere else, I'll buy it. 
and I, I remember sitting on it for a little while before I watched it, and it was only then that I realized, oh, this is a take on Donovan's brain, and and I remember thinking, this is nothing really like the radio adaptation, which I loved, and I remember, you know, I was I was intrigued with it. But ultimately, upon a second viewing, I have to say I really don't like this version. Eric von Stroheim's Franz Mueller is is very unlikable. Vera Ralston is not a good actress, and the print copy was was rough. I mean, that's it's this is a hard film to find. It is not commercially available. It uh, so if you find it out there, you're going to be getting a bootleg copy of it. I think that it's probably on YouTube. I believe, but uh, it's it's a film that you know. The copies out there, because it's not been released commercially, they're rougher copies. And uh, the, our, the print we watched was dark, which didn't necessarily deter from the viewing. It just kind of added to the fact that this is, I'm not, I wasn't a particular fan. And, and in fact, of the three film adaptations, this is my least favorite of the three. I agree. I agree. There's nothing I'd counter in that. I'm scanning through my notes now. There's no, nothing even really uh, to point out that I particularly liked. Uh, about it. I, I do want to say one other thing, another point brought in, and it may be from the book, is that once Donovan dies, there are family members that pop up and attorneys that somehow are connected to Donovan. And they either, well, they all, I think, want to know, did he say anything before he died? Did any papers fall out of his pocket? Yeah, They're sort of mysterious ca- characters. You think that they're out for something. Later on, they, they play a bigger role. But these characters are, this is the first time we encounter them in the story, and and they will be in other versions. Yeah, I I don't I don't really have anything else to say about this. I didn't enjoy it either. Yeah, it you know it. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any redeeming qualities about this film that would that would get you to want to watch it, other than the fact that if you like the idea of Donovan's brain, and, and you're one of those where like when you start watching a particular adaptation you want to see other adaptations and you enjoy the compare and contrast that is probably where lady and the monster comes into play is that if you enjoy that and i know a lot of you do that's for those of us who are who are you know lovers of of classic horror films we like to compare and contrast and and that's that's where lady and the monster you'll get some enjoyment from that is that you know seeing some of the differences and stuff the biggest problem with this is that there's not a lot in this film that's that I think you're going to walk away from unless maybe you're an Eric von Stroheim fan and you want to see something that he does, or maybe a Richard Arlen fan. I can't imagine there's going to be any Vera Ralston fans, <laughs> no. but worth it for that. But beyond that, the least of the three movies, certainly. I agree. Lou Ayers. As the scientist who discovered that the human brain can survive bodily destruction, can continue to function as a dynamo of living thought, generating a mental power greater than the science of man, Gene Evans, as his assistant, sharing the burden of a terrifying knowledge with ever-increasing fear and hatred. Stop it! Mr. Donovan intends to dominate the international financial scene. And a fatal accident will occur to all who happen to stand in his way. Steve Brody is the reporter who probed too deeply into the beyond and received the full impact of its deadliest forces.
Donovan's death was no accident. Donovan engineered it. And the same thing could happen to us. Donovan could kill us the same way he killed Yoko. That's right. And it's too dangerous to wait any longer. Frank! Surprised? Thanks to Dr. Patrick Corey, Donovan's brain will live, thrive, and continue to grow far beyond the body of Dr. Corey. It is already able to exist in any body, anywhere it will. Knowing this, you now know too much. Nancy Davis, as the woman who was compelled to submit to the brain's satanic vibrations of evil. Nineteen fifty-three, probably the the best known. Yes, this and the, maybe because it's the only one called Donovan's Brain. Yes, and I think the fact that that this one is probably the easiest to get your hands on as well um, is probably you know it's just a movie and it was an independent film, so it wasn't coming from a mainstream production studio out of Hollywood, but uh, it's got a couple of of well-known cast members. Um, it was, I feel the best from a film production standpoint. I think it had the biggest budget out of the three films. The fact that it was originally available as part of the uh, MGM Midnight Movies DVD series and has now, just last year, early 2016, been released on Blu-ray by Kino Lorber, it's, it's a film you can easily get your hands on. 1953, gas was 20 cents. You could buy a Kodak, uh, Kodak, Kodak, how about that? Kodak camera for $13. Queen Elizabeth II was crowned queen. And she's still the queen all these years <laughs> later. Uh, the Korean War ended. Dwight D. Eisenhower was uh, elected president. Jonas Salk perfected the polio vaccine. We had some films taking place. Uh, from a horror genre, we had House of Wax with Vincent Price. We had Invaders from Mars. We had War of the Worlds. Outside the genre, we had some films like Stalag 17, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and From Here to Eternity. So we had some um, some big films this year, and Donovan's Brain wasn't necessarily, it was not an A film. It was definitely a B film. But you had a good cast. You had Lou Ayers as Dr. Patrick Corey. And Lou Ayers is a well-known actor. I think people will probably recognize him from, say, the Questar tapes, uh, the 1970s. Uh, he was in Damien Omen 2. Uh, of course, a lot of people are talking Stephen King as of late. So yes, he was in the 79 uh, miniseries version of Salem's Lot. Um, he was also in the pilot episode of Battlestar Galactica. Well-known actor. He was in a lot of different things. And so you probably have seen him at one point or another. Um, his wife, Janice, who uh, plays a, a, a prominent role in this version, uh, was played by Nancy Davis, who, of course, would become Mrs. Ronald Reagan and Mrs. President, I guess, many years later. And Gene Evans, who is another character actor, uh, would play the character of Dr. Schratt, uh, also, I think, in a, in a bigger role in this one. Definitely. Than I think in other adaptations. It sticks pretty close to the to the core story. It, it takes place in Arizona. Plane crashes. <clears throat> They're saving the uh, 
you know, attempt to save the body of, of William H. Donovan. They don't. They keep the brain, and the brain begins to have an influence over Dr. Corey. A few things a little different. The brain continues to grow in size in this film, and its influence is much greater, I think, in this one than we see in any of the other adaptations because it it clearly controls Dr. Corey from a, from quite a distance. I mean, he, he, he lives out in the desert. He's going into the big city, but he also has influence over Dr. Schratt. He has influence over a, a reporter who goes into the home. Donovan is able to seemingly have control over multiple right, people. Right, right. So the power of Donovan's brain in this one is, is, is really enhanced over other versions. This one, of course, is interesting because as Dr. Corey becomes influenced by William Donovan, it's a pretty intricate plot of him taking large sums of money and blackmailing some of Donovan's former cohorts in crime. Yeah, it's he's a big tax evasion person in this and his he's bribing officials in Washington. I think this was probably the most muddled for me sort of plot. I mean, now that I think about it, what was what was he ultimately trying to get? Ultimately, I think it was Donovan was was trying to I don't want to say take over the world, but he kind of had this this you know, idea that you know he he had grander visions of of basically continuing to be this this powerful man beyond death, and he was going to use Doctor Corey as as his means of doing it, and he needed to eliminate any of these obstacles. You're right though the the plot was a bit muddled in this one because never did quite quite see what the end game was. It's like was it world domination? Was it just to continue to be a powerful? You know, multi-millionaire. Is this the one where uh, he was going to use the money to build a, a vault where the brain would live yes. and continue to rule the world? Yes. I thought yes, that was a was. fun idea. Yeah. So, I mean, so, yeah, he, he's got this vision. He's going to keep on living and rule the world, I guess. You know, is this the, you know, the bit of the mad scientist uh, plot development? But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, th- that part was certainly different than other adaptations, I loved Lou Ayer's performance, though, as Dr. Well, Corey. see, I was going to ask you about that. I kind of think he was miscast. He or, was. I, he couldn't be. He had, well, I never took him as a as a a bad guy. And, he, and I know he's not supposed to be the bad guy, but even under the influence of Donovan, he just didn't... I don't know. I didn't. I don't think he had the there were chops moments. for it. There were moments, I agree with you, though. There were moments that... I really liked his performance that when he when he could when he I think he truly did perform it. He was evil. Like there was this like when he was talking to the children in the bed and when he was in the hospital and just kind of the the way he dealt with those kids and dismissed them as like, yeah, you know, well you're not gonna get the money, you know, be gone with you. Those moments he excelled. I agree. But there was other moments where it did seem like he was too nice. So this is gonna sound contradictory, but he Sometimes I didn't know when he had switched to Donovan, and then at other times it was too obvious that he had switched. I had a, a hard time knowing, okay, who is he right now? And this is where visually, it, it, comparing like Lady and the Monster, in some ways it was easier because it was sometimes so over-melodramatic, I think, when he would switch. 
He would just be angry. Here, it was a little easier without having to have that that anger in the voice because you'd see mannerisms. Right. You know, smoking of the cigar, using the left hand, walking with a limp, holding his kidneys. So sometimes it was, in some ways it was subtle, but it was also much more in your face, right? It's like, okay, you know, all he had to do was a certain, you could just see him walk. And if he walked with a limp, you knew. Like there's a scene towards the end where he, he you know, his, he's confronting his wife. He realizes that that uh, Dr. Shrad is up to something. He's he shot the brain or whatever, or shot at the brain. And all of a sudden he kind of pretends that he's weak and acts like, you know, but then when you see them walking down, he's walking with the limp and he's holding his kidneys. Right. That and, was sort of the twist in that one. They yes. think they've destroyed the brain, but ah, it's still but, but it's still still ticking. Yeah. So I think here's a good example of what I'm talking about. So I like this uh, plot element in a moment where he is himself. He realizes what's going on and he organizes the eventual destruction of the brain. Should he become incapacitated to do well, it? He, he creates so the he, recording, right, right? He raises a recording and says, "Hey, we have a lightning rod on the house," uh, and you know, that lightning rod's going to come into play at some point. But he had the wherewithal to do that and to, you know, try to stop it, even though there were only these few moments that he was in enough control to be able to do that. Yes. I thought that was kind of cool. I and agree. that's ultimately what saves him, too, is, yeah, he's going to go off to jail, possibly. Uh, you know, hasn't been convicted yet for the crime of stealing the brain. But he has this recording which proves that he really was trying to be good. So they think he's going to get off with a light sentence. Well, there's also all the, the, the fraud investigation, too. It's kind of tied into that because he's he was taking all that money. And so all this evidence that his wife had been keeping, again, putting her, I think, in a much better light than some of the other versions, right? I mean, she she wasn't wealthy. She was, she was you know, by his side. And ultimately, she, as opposed to... The radio version where she's sent off to an asylum, she actually ends up kind of saving him in a way because she was the one keeping all the notes and and making sure that there's this paper trail to show that what he was doing. So, um, which I thought was a nice twist. Yeah, and again, I keep going back to this ending, but I, I just thought the ending was funny. So it's all all this has happened, you know, and they're just joking along, and he's like, "Well, maybe when I get back, they'll need a country doctor." And she's like, no, honey, you're a scientist. That kind of says a lot about the relationship and what you're saying is that she supports him and she, you know, is, is kind of helping along. But it also uh, is 1953 filmmaking mentality. It's that happy ending. It's like, yes, you know, the world almost got destroyed. But in the end, you know, yeah. and he he goes off smiling. He's happy as can be. And, the, and she's I think the last images of her with, you know, a concerned look on her face. Yeah, he, he literally, he does go off smiling off into the sunset, you know, and, and uh, you know, but I like this version the best because I guess maybe it's just, I liked the the actors in it. There was a, a level of professionalism in the way they presented their characters. We didn't have, you know, the maniacal Professor Mueller. We didn't have the, no, I can't act my way out of a paper bag, Vera Ralston. You've got... A good presentation, a good a good film. Yeah, it, it is not my favorite. It, we'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, it is undoubtedly the best, the, 
the most well-made. I think it's the best written, even though I don't like the plot twist. Some of the dialogue is really good. In fact, I meant to tell you earlier, I, I even pulled a couple of clips out to play. The part, which I will play here in just a second, when he's ordering suits. Yes. I thought it was just hilarious. Yeah. I loved that line. Do you have any blue serge with a thin pinstripe? Yes, sir, we certainly do. We have just ordered a bolt especially for Mr. Donovan shortly before uh, the accident. I'll take half a dozen suits. Certainly, sir. I want the first one in the morning. Uh, that's impossible, sir. Not if you put one tailor on the coat, another on the trousers, and have both work all night. Now, let's get on with my measurements. And here's the thing, too, that bugs me about this movie. And I don't know if you're going to see this or not, but it almost has a religious angle to it. Twice, and I'm going to play these clips as well, but twice they talk about God. And and in the first one, uh, it's when the assistant and the wife are trying to confront him and, and, you know, tell him, you know, don't you realize what you're doing? You need to stop, whatever. And... He says... He told us that it was an experiment, uh, an investigation of human emotions, a, a search is. for happiness. It is. It is all those things. But human emotions exist way deep in the mind. So far, I've only managed a superficial communication with the brain. Oh, you're off your rocker, pal. You're way past the brain. You're looking for the soul. You're out of your department. That's why I tell you you're kidding yourself. And if you're not, if you are on the level, then you're trying to play God. Oh, Frank... You know, I couldn't have gotten this far without God's help. He wouldn't have gotten this far without God's help. It's, and and that, kind of, that lets him yeah. off the hook. In fact, the, the assistant says, oh, you're going to get off the hook this time because you brought God into it, sort of. I thought that was odd. And then uh, a little bit later on, when the assistant tries to throw the breaker to turn the power off that's keeping the brain alive, and Donovan or Corey comes down and they struggle and all that, the wife breaks it up. He said, he uses the word unholy. He calls it, this is an unholy experiment. Yeah. And he says, well... It's unnatural, unholy. Well, if it is, we'll let a higher power decide when it should end. If so, we'll let a higher power decide when we should, when it should end. So, I don't know, that really struck me. And it just, do you see that at all? I mean, I see that now, and I guess, again, I think that's a product of the day. I mean, 1950s... The 1950s is kind of a different era. I mean, when you look at uh, like the horror movies, uh, even like, you know, we were getting a different, because there wasn't a lot of full-blown horror films in the 1950s. We had a lot of sci-fi, giant monster mutated by the evils of of atomic radiation kind of thing. Whereas, you know, the the Frankenstein's Draculas and Wolfman, we didn't get that really. Not until Hammer came in at the end of the decade. Any film that you have, you know, where there's this this big threat, there's always there are elements of God that come into play in the 1950s and other films, and so um, and then there's always that again. The ending is always kind of like, well, we almost got eaten by this giant spider, but all's well in the end. I think that was a direct reflection of, of the filmmaking style of the day, which is probably why they incorporated that into this into this version which is something we didn't see in the others. And I guess, too, that sort of plays to the, the happy ending and them letting him off. I mean, it comes back to whether I think he was miscast or not, because he just, Lou Air seems like just a good old guy. And maybe if his character is a God-fearing man who's religious, that helps him, too, in the end, get get off and get his happy ending. Well, and I think, I think that, uh, yeah, and maybe that's why I like this version, because, I mean, because Dr. Corey isn't really 
seen as, as evil, evil in this one. You know, he's clearly under the influence and ultimately at the end of the day, he was the one that did the recording and came up with the idea. You know, you don't really necessarily, I like, you know, you don't feel that. You just certainly didn't get that in the radio adaptation, you know, that it, obviously the, the next version we're going to talk about, the brain in 62 is a little different in the way they approached it. And he certainly is, is a lot less evil in that one. I mean, I don't know, but I think that that I can kind of see your point where Lou Ayers might have been miscast in some ways, but in other elements, I kind of like him in that role. I think that yeah. his the way he performs in certain scenes, maybe not consistent all the way through. Maybe there's elements where he that is he's not convincing, but then in other scenes, I think that it comes off well. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, anything else to say about this one? I like this one. Like I said earlier, it's readily available on, on Blu-ray, and so I can imagine uh, the DVD print I had was excellent, so I'm sure the Blu-ray is, is excellent as well and even better. So definitely worth uh, tracking down. Process of Elimination, The Brain, 1962, was my favorite movie version anyway. I think we've agreed that the radio was the favorite overall version. I think to yourself, I hope that this poor little monkey's brain is still functioning. He's been with us for a long time, helping us. We have become rather fond of him. If he's not going to go on sending signals anymore, we have to start all over again. Well, there's nothing wrong with this machine. It's a more delicate one that gave up. <sighs> Still, we're making headway. He's given us a lot. Strongest reaction so far. Yeah, but what kind of reactions? Pain? Furious, bewildered thought? Or just placid detachment. If I knew the answer to that. You would be on the cover of Time magazine. He'd like some more coffee. He would like a drink. Look at it. And that proof. A banner of progress. Take anyone from the street. Show them that and tell them it's a message from a brain. A brain without a body. They'd think you were insane. They'd say it's science fiction. Yeah, it's all cruelty to animals. Animals for the moment. No. For a long, long time. Why? You are a surgeon. Once. You have seen plenty of human brains on your operating table, haven't you? There's not much difference from that one. No? Well, there's one thing for sure. If they ever get that brain of yours in a glass bowl, it'll burst the damn thing. I liked the different angle. I, I liked the... Not necessarily the execution, but the idea of the the mystery in this one. And that's basically he's solving his own murder. Who, who did kill him? The plane crash was not an accident. And who did it? As I say, they they kind of botched the execution a little because the biggest thing that they do is they plant a red herring in the daughter. And it's not Donovan in this movie, by the way. It's Max Holt. It, it is. It, it is Donovan. Well, but right. But yeah, the they've, they've changed yeah. the name. and But yeah, they keep... Like they keep the name Peter Corey the same. They change the spelling. Uh, actually, it Peter is different, isn't it? Patrick and the others. Oh yeah, I guess you are right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, little things like it's things like yeah, that. I wonder why 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 change that. But yeah, well, and <laughs> yeah, they had to change the spelling. I guess maybe because this one's obviously it's 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 a British film. So they, they changed a few, you know, of the settings around and some of the characters around. You have Anne Haywood as Anna Holt, uh, Peter Who Mann. gets top billing in this. Yes, 
she gets top billing. You've got Peter Van Eck as Dr. Peter Corey, uh, well known for films like The Wages of Fear, The Secret of Dr. Mabuse. Uh, Bridget Good Lamont. pronunciation. Yes, I like that. Yes, like we talked about this before we recorded. <laughs> um, Bridget Ramagan, which was his last film, The Snorkel. Hammer. Hammer, well-known Hammer film. Tarzan's Hidden Fountain, which I don't recall the role he played in that. I've seen all of the I Tarzan I think he played films. the Hidden Fountain. Did he? Did yeah. He, play? He, he, he was the Hidden Fountain. He was the lead role. Um, I loved to see Bernard Lee in something other than James Bond. Of course, he was the original M in the Bond films. He plays Dr. Frank Shears, who essentially is the Dr. Shrat, Shrat version yeah. in this one. And I think it's worth mentioning that the character of Martin Holt, played by Jeremy Spencer, I think he was the brother uh, yes, the artist, I, yeah. which that artwork played a, a, kind of a key role in, in the course of this film. Take a step back real quick. 1962. What was going on oh, in the yeah. world in 1962? Gas was now 28 cents. Uh, you could buy a house for $12,500. There were some big events, though, this year. Uh, John Glenn became the first man in space. There was a little thing called the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, Marilyn Monroe sang happy birthday to uh, President Kennedy. You had the Space Needle was completed in Seattle just in time for the Seattle World's Fair. Uh, the very first Walmart and the very first Kmart opened in 1962. Consider that good or bad, depending on your opinion of uh, those. Kmart is essentially dead and dying, or dying almost dead at this point. Walmart is thriving. And, and has its own breed of people. Yes, yes it does. Uh, <laughs> that in itself is a whole horror cast. Um Movies of the day, West Side Story, Spartacus, Lawrence of Arabia, from the horror films, and we've talked already about some of these, Carnival of Souls came out, uh, The Brain That Wouldn't Die, and Day of the Triffids in 1962. Uh, The Beatles, little known band, were having a hit or two, one hit wonders around this time. In 1962, Johnny Carson became the host of The Tonight Show. So a lot going on in the world in 1962. The Brain, of course, was was made in... Uh, it's a British film made in England. But you know what? This is... Did you notice this? It didn't open in England until December of 63. It opened in West Germany in October of 62. So then hit the UK in 63. And then it didn't come here to the States till 64. So I'd really like to know that sort of the history of... I guess it would have to be in distribution deals and behind so I couldn't the scenes. find much on this uh, yeah. about this film. And well, I, I didn't know it existed until you, I think, texted and said, "Hey, do you want to add a third movie?" I'm like, oh, is there one? <laughs> I, I didn't know that either until I started doing some research. I was like, I had never heard of this one before. Um, and Freddie Francis directed it. I mean, he's yes. a, a great cinematographer and um, and film director uh based on other films that have kind of a similar history when it's like you know made in, in england but then ends up getting released somewhere else and, and doesn't pop up in england chances are it was had it was maybe well received uh, and i'm sure they have you know the production studios much the same as hollywood look at films and like okay is this going to be a hit or not maybe they for whatever reason didn't feel like it was going to be a hit so it gets released somewhere else not uncommon at the time for films to be released in their country of origin prior to coming to the United States. Right, yeah. That, um, and often, it's certainly if the film wasn't 
going to be as well received that it might take a little bit longer for it to hit to the States. And uh, the fact that it was Donovan's brain without really using the name Donovan, you know, you couldn't really capitalize on the fact that this is a remake of the of the 53 film based on the 42 novel. I mean, it, it's almost like it's a separate beast, but it, it, it they... they and I don't know the reasons why. Yeah, do you have to pay royalties or anything if you adapt a book to? Make I think a you movie? still had to. I think. I mean. I think maybe <clears throat> because it was a European film, maybe they wanted that that German flair. I don't know. Maybe that had a reason why. Because Max Holt was was German, wasn't he? Wasn't he? The, wasn't the character? He seemed German. Yeah, I think the way because he, he had an accent, mm-hmm. which which came across as German to me. Maybe that somehow tied into why the film was released in Germany first. Maybe they were, maybe there was some German financing and maybe that's why it was released. I don't know. I couldn't find much out on the brain. It's a, certainly is a more obscure film and that certainly takes extensive liberties to the idea. Why don't you talk about this film a little bit? Yeah, what, so, what are some of the differences? Well, as I was saying, the, 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 the thing, he's solving his own murder and uh, again, his, the children of of Donovan slash Holter brought in and they're a much bigger part of this story. The the daughter is played the whole time to be a red herring as far as the actual murder. And I guess here I go contradicting myself because she was such an obvious red herring. I'm like, all right, she didn't do it. You know who did, but then it really was her. So does that mean well, it means she probably wasn't a red herring, but does that mean it was successful because it ended up surprising me anyway? Or was it just really, were you from the start, did you think she was responsible? I or? didn't think she was responsible. Yeah, no, okay. So, so I guess it was a sort of a surprise. I don't know. And, and, and you mentioned the brother. I really liked him. Um, I never, I was going to say I never considered him a suspect, but I guess looking back on it, he could, could have been. He did not get along with his father. And, Actually, it turns out at the end, he wrote to warn his father that, that there was this plot against him. And his father so disliked him that he didn't even read the letter. Uh, look what that got him. So that's an interesting character, the relationship between him and his sister. Uh, I, I really liked that, that part. Corey is not really... This is different. He's not... I don't really think a lot of the... I think he's influenced by... Max Holt at sometimes, but he's more himself, really. In fact, doesn't the brain get destroyed early in the movie, half or three quarters through? And he's really on his own, still pursuing the murder. And they're asking, "Well, why are you? St- why do you still?" But did you catch the thing at the end of the film? And this is where we got to do the little spoiler, right? And and the very last scene, you see him tapping yes, his thumb. Yes. Corey is tapping his thumb, which is a characteristic that Max Holt had. Yes. No, I, that wasn't Corey. That was Martin, the son, wasn't it? No. Really? No. Oh. No. No, because and you look at it in the back seat of that car. Right. Corey is on, well, as you're looking at the screen, he's on the left-hand side. Right. And the son is on the right-hand side. I, I was under the impression ah. that it was that it was. So I like that. I thought it was Martin the Sun. Do we need to double check that before we go on? Well, I don't know. See, that to me, that implied that Max Holt was actually part of Dr. Corey now. That there was, that there was, that was the one thing I thought when I saw that, I was like, well, that's interesting. Twist is because he's doing that. 
So does that imply that 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 the influence that he has, even though the brain is now gone, is that he still has he's a part of Dr. Corey now? I I like that. I like that. I I again I thought it was Martin. I thought that either because of his relationship with his father and how opposed they were, now it's inevitable that he's gonna take his father's place. And I huh, that's interesting. I don't know. Do you want to stop and watch? We need to stop Let's and do. watch because Let's do. either either I'm on to something <laughs> or or I'm totally off base. So we're going to pause for a moment. Yeah. We'll be back in and after this break to see uh, to see if in fact I'm correct. Yeah. This is a first. I'm excited. Richard, you were right, and I like that. I I am glad you pointed that out. I, I think for me that was such a, a cool twist at the end. And although this is not my favorite version, it's my favorite twist. I think we every one other one has kind of a little twist along the way, and this one implies that. And the only time that it's implied is that Donovan or Max Holt lives on. Right. Well, it did in Donovan's brain, but. It was temporary. Uh, they it, it eventually did really destroy the brain, but they really did destroy it. Yeah. So I mean, all and all the other versions. I mean, you know, the influence is, is severed and and life goes on. And in this case, it's implied because the son says, you know, wouldn't it have been better to let you know all of my father die? You know, I'm not sure that the son knows whether or not that that his father lives on. But the fact that it's the last scene is the is the thumb yeah. is certainly yes, the father so, is alive. Let me then, ask you this. This is the one where the people go into the lab and they think they destroy the brain, but they they've switched it and it's the monkey brain that they destroyed and they really hid Holt's brain. So did they never destroy the brain in that? I thought they did. I thought that the housewife but I guess it doesn't matter because it somehow transferred into his brain. Well yeah, I I think God, all these versions. Yeah, I know. Confused. It's just compare and contrast and confuse. But my thought was that the, that the brain had been destroyed and that the, that there's a remnant of, of Max Holt that's living on within Dr. Corey now. And what happens with that is anybody's guess. But uh, I don't know. Interesting. Interesting way to end this movie, which this movie, of course, is so much of a of a murder mystery and, and, a, and, and a as it's called, a, a Brit Noir it's it's very film noirish with a very low budget. I, I, I think it, you know. It, to me, it just seemed like <sighs> stagey. I, I don't. I don't know. Well, it was every. It was shot in so much close up. Yeah, uh, it was really close in, and of course, it may have been the print, but it was dark, and that that has good and bad parts. The it was shadowy and and moody and that was good but then also sometimes it was just too dark but i definitely noticed the style it was very you know lots of just top of the chest up to the head even when there's two or three people in the screen uh so i, it, see, it, I would it, love to see a, a a restored print of this film i don't have that desire for letting the monster i don't think a restored print is going to save that i think that if, if a good, clear copy of this became available, that it, it could clearly enhance the, the viewing uh, for me, and I could, I could look at it in a different light. 
but as you said, the way it's presented now, because it's again, it has that noirish look to it. For some reason, when I was watching this, I just to me it seemed like a, a cheaper production. Uh, I loved, you know, Peter Van Eck's performance. I think was great. I, I loved seeing Bernard Lee. Uh, I loved the the brothers' quirky drawings that you know, disturbing drawings, really, in in many ways. I liked those elements that enhanced the the film for me. But and and of course, the ending is a, is a wonderful little twist. But all that aside. It's not my favorite version. My second favorite, I love, for me, the 53 version, if we're talking film versions, then this one, and then Lady and the Monster would be a distant third. And and by the way, this was only Freddie Francis' second film as a director, so Mm, that might explain. But then his next one was Day of the Triffids, which I would say there's a marked improvement in the style between those two. And budget, too. I mean, Day of the Triffids had a lot of location shots and stuff, so... I think you were working with a with a, a much bigger budget, in which you can do a lot more with that. And I think that's why, for me, the the brain seemed very, I mean, low budget because it seemed very stagey in its performance. They had very, I think it, a lot of it was filmed on sound stages, and it's, again, there was a lot of close up shots and stuff. And that may simply be because a lower budget film they had smaller sets, and so they they just didn't have the luxurious sets, and so you've got to focus on what you've got, which in this case didn't seem to be, didn't seem to be a lot. So you had to focus on the actors. So we're in agreement on two things of, of the, just all of the, the mediums, medias, media that we watched. We like the radio show the best. Yes. We haven't read the book. That's, so that's disqualified. We like the movie lady and the monster the least. Yes. And then we're just flipped on which one is our favorite. I think so. And for me, it's not no matter of quality or anything. It's just, I like the combination of elements better in, in the brain. It, I just enjoyed it the most of all. Well, and like I said, I would love to see a, a, a good version of this. This is not available. Um, so we watched it on YouTube. <clears throat> they identify it on YouTube as a public domain film. However, I don't believe that I've seen this on any public domain sets. I, I'm going to get up and look at my 100 movie pack and just confer. I think it is part of the 200 movie pack. Okay, we'll see. Then there you go. No, it is not part of this set. Which and I and it's not a title that I've seen pop up on other sets. So I'm going to say it's not public and domain. And there's other movies called The Brain. I mean, even if you look this one up, you've got to go further and get all your search results well and if you do if even if you do a search for the brain 1962 it's going to pull up the brain that wouldn't die which came out the same year so you've got to kind of dive in a little bit but it is on youtube um and again you know prints a little dark it's but it's uh best of my knowledge it's the best print available to us at this point unless there's some print available over in europe uh which i nothing pulled up on amazon and usually they pull up uk versions so Again, not uh, an easy film to find, but it is on YouTube for now. So so I have one last question to sort of wrap this up. We had, you know, basically a movie every 10 years based on Donovan's Brain, and there hasn't been one since 62. Is that just because the concept uh, has become so common and that it's used in so many other ways? I mean, are we due for a, uh, a remake of Donovan's Brain? If you think about the the disembodied head movies... Kind of that 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 genre kind of died out after this when because we were six years later we were getting Night of the Living Dead horror was beginning to change 
I'm, I'm sure, I know there's other disembodied head movies. I'm thinking Reanimator for one, for example, which takes things in a, obviously in a much different different way. And I know that there's other films that deal with like influence and stuff like that. You know, and I think it's maybe just that the fact that the ideas presented have been maybe picked up in pieces by other adaptations, movies, what have you. Uh, and then I think that we've just become too removed from the original source material that adapting a novel by Kurt Siodmak, Kurt Siodmak is not a name anyone's going to know unless you're a fan of classic horror. Uh, in 1962, even then, I think that's maybe why they changed up things a little bit because even at that point, Kurt Siodmak, Kurt Siodmak wasn't really a household name. 1953, he was still close enough to the original source material and, and close enough to other films that he had been doing that he was still well-known. Uh, but by the 1960s, he was becoming part of Hollywood's past and uh, his works were a bit more removed. You know, even though I, I know, I have in my notes here somewhere that, um, hang on a second, he actually wrote a sequel. Yes. Uh, called Hauser's Memory. I'm trying to think of the year it was written. It was one of his later books, and it was... 68. Yeah. And was made into a 1970 TV movie starring David McCallum and Susan Strasberg. I know nothing about it. Uh, I read the plot, and it seemed to be relatively similar of yeah, sorts. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a strict sequel, but I think thematically... Or, thematically, yeah. I think, is where that comes into play. I mean, Stephen King... Loved it. He mentions it uh, in his book Dance Macabre, which is about his love for Donovan's films. brain or Hauser's memory. Uh, Donovan's oh, brain. Okay. And uh, and he also and I it was referenced both in the novel and in the original miniseries. It. It's been a long time since I've seen the miniseries, so I don't uh, recall how it would how it came into play. You know, Stephen King was a fan of the original source material, so <clears throat> I think just for now nowadays, I think that. Uh, it's probably too far removed, which is why we just don't hear it. Well, and I actually think it could be ripe for a remake. In fact, I think it fits perfectly, if The Mummy is an example, into the dark universe. Because it's a movie with what you think is a monster, which is really a minor part of it. They could really play up that criminal intrigue and go all-out action with it, and it could disappoint everyone. So that's... I think it's perfect for a remake. Well, you know, um, there was a film not too long ago, uh, maybe a month ago as we speak, that was just released called Demon with the Atomic Brain. So the the concept of, of brains controlling people, I guess, technically still lives on in 2017. Maybe that's a, a segue of sorts as we wrap up our conversation about Donovan's brain. I guess final thoughts are we enjoyed this. I enjoy this version or this journey version. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I am one of those completest, one of those persons where if I watch one, I want to watch them all. And they're not all going to be great. You're not going to like them all. But I think in this case, I liked pieces of all of them, except maybe Lady and the Monster. And I think if I exposed you to to uh, something from old-time radio, and, and maybe that opens the door for you to explore some other great pieces of old-time radio suspense and escape. Well, and, and I've done that before. I mean, yeah. I, I've listened to Boris Karloff. In fact, just the other day, I downloaded something Derek had posted um, about a Vincent Price radio uh, performance 
three something and oh, three something key. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that there's a lot of versions of that out there. But if you find the one with Vincent Price, because Escape, I think alone did a lot of different. And that was on suspense too, I believe. Mm-hmm. The Vincent Price version is my favorite version of that. Um, so, well, let me just say this: if someone listening to this show now downloads suspense and listens to that and and ex- explores old time radio for the first time and that opens them up to a whole new world then i have done my my work my, Your my work job is, is is complete very good very good okay well that wraps up our uh discussion then uh, we'll take a quick break and come back and uh, close with our regular features and the announcement of our contest which we've been teasing all through the day let's for a moment wish ourselves away to havana cuba seated at a table in the fashionable hotel de nacional de cuba near us a a group of cubans are entertaining an american visitor our american has just remarked that in point of great enjoyment the cuban rumba is one of america's most delightful imported dances and then raising his wine glass the cuban host responds then we have perhaps discharged some part of our debt to you Americans for this wonderful tasting wine that gives us such great enjoyment. It is wine that Cuba imports from your faraway California. It is Roma wine. Americans didn't have to wait for wine connoisseurs of other lands to discover the greatness of California's wine districts, the superb quality of Roma California wine. So many millions made this discovery for themselves that Roma wines have long been America's largest selling wines. But these millions discovered something more. In Roma wines, they discovered an easy and expensive way to increase the delights of daily living. Yes, millions have discovered that Roma wines, as a beverage on the table, and when used in entertaining, add a charm of a special and wholesome kind. I told you Roma wines cost little. That's because here in America, you pay no high import duty, no expensive shipping charges. And two, Roma wines come from Roma's own wineries in the heart of choice California vineyard districts. So cost to you is only pennies a glass for R-O-M-A Roma wine. Made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. We are back. Let's run through real quickly uh, since we've gone long but not bad with three movies. We did pretty good. Just now at a little over two hours. Uh, our releases on home video for this month. We have... See, this should come out in time for all of these. They shouldn't have passed. On the 7th, we have from VCI Entertainment, Satan's Cheerleaders, a 1977 classic. I have not I'm seen sure. it. Uh, November 14th, we have quite a, a big day with some uh, two big box sets. That's when the George A. Romero Between Night and Dawn box sets come out. This is supposed to be the movies that were made between Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, but they are minus the most significant one, Martin, which I don't know why, but if you like the crazies or... There's always Vanilla or Season of the Witch. This is the box set for you from Arrow Video. We also have Attack of the Puppet People from Shout Factory. We have the Paul Nashi Collection 2 from Shout Factory. And then there's a Psycho Complete 4 Movie Collection coming out on the 14th from Universal. How many times have they repackaged those? You know, for me, I've seen... Two and three. I've never seen four. I don't know. For me, I stop at the original. The original is just so 
far ahead of the others. Psycho 2 is fun. I like Psycho 2. And then... But on its own, I mean, you're right. There's just no... You can't watch Psycho 1 and Psycho 2 without just feeling like you've taken a huge step down. So, But I like what they attempted in Psycho 2. And, and you know, certainly bringing Anthony Perkins back was good. But uh, for film box set, not sure that it's on my, my wish list for the holidays. Nope, nope. November 21st, we have uh, one from Kino Classics, the 1945 Hangover Square. Not strictly horror, but I think it falls into the, the classic... Uh, category. I just saw that for the first time fairly recently, and it, I, I liked it. I did, too. I saw it a long time ago. It's a good film. Yeah. And then on the 28th, from Blue Underground, the 1974 movie Death Dream, which has another name that I am blanking on right now. It's a pretty good movie, directed by Bob Clark, who would do uh, Black Christmas. Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and mention the first week of December because there's there's something we may talk about for a moment, and that is that Severin is putting out an Amicus Collection box set that has Asylum and now The Screaming Starts and The, the beast, Werewolf one. The, the beast, beast Must Die. Yes, The Beast Must Die. Um, nice box set. It's got some enamel pins. It's got photographs suitable for framing. And it's got the very good book yes. is included in that. We, as Jeff and I have had conversations, are we getting this box set? And I think we both have decided no, because we both had the book already. And and honestly, if you are even remotely interested in any of the films and you don't have the great great book that uh, that that is included in the set, it's well worth diving into. But we had the book already. We had good copies of the films, uh, or at least. I had good copies of two of the films, and then the Beast Must Die copy I have is, is again, acquired from other sources, and that's not one of my favorite films, so I don't feel the need to get an upgrade to that. But it is nice that this is coming out in time for the holidays, so if you have never added those films to your collection or seen them, or if you don't have that book, then I think it's well worth it. Yeah, and Asylum and Now the Screaming Starts, they are also releasing individually. And if anything, I'll upgrade Asylum to Blu-ray because I absolutely love that. That's my favorite Amicus anthology movie. And then we have two 1976 movies coming out from Arrow on December 5th, The Premonition and The Witch Who Came from the Sea or Witch from the Sea. I'm familiar with the title, haven't seen it. Yeah. That's what's coming out on home video. We have some significant birthdays this month. November. Uh, November 8th, Bram Stoker. November 10th, and that was in 1847. Claude Rains, November 10th of 1889. Jacques Tourneur, November 12th, 1904. The lovely Ingrid Pitt, November 21st, 1937. Jamie Lee Curtis, November 22nd, 1958. Then The Man, Boris Karloff, November 23rd, 1887. And Forrest J. Ackerman, November 24th, 1916. So Karloff's one that I almost feel like you got to watch something for his birthday and maybe throw something up on the blog about it. Maybe not for someone who's written a whole book about him, but... Well, and, you know, I I still have some Karloff films that I have not reviewed for the blog. There's still a handful that I did not officially 
do. I covered the best of the best when I did an entire month at Karloff, and I've added some others over the years uh, that followed that. Uh, but I still have some that I haven't. It's like the Ape from 1940. Now, that's not Karloff's best, but it's a mad scientist, one of his mad scientist roles. Uh, British Intelligence, which is an interesting film he did. I haven't reviewed that. So, I, you know, you might, uh, you might have inspired me. I might have to to take a look and see what Karloff films I haven't reviewed and maybe throw up one to, to honor Mr. Karloff on his birthday because you're right, you have to do something. Yeah. I, I want to mention a, a couple anniversaries of movie release dates because this is going to spur maybe a minute or two of conversation. So in November, Universal released three big Universal classic monster movies. Uh, Invisible Man was November 13th of 33. Phantom of the Opera was November 15th of 1925, and then Frankenstein was 11-21-31. And I'm just curious, I have a couple theories, but it's just interesting to me that three such big blockbusters are coming out, in, like came out in November. Any thoughts on why that might be? I don't know. They didn't have necessarily box office seasons back then. I mean... Yeah, it's not like, you know, holidays were coming up and that was their big holiday releases. I don't believe back then they I don't have. think so. I don't think so. I mean, that's that's more of a recent, I mean, you know, uh, invention, I think, from Hollywood. So I don't know. I, that's, that's interesting. That's, my, my thoughts are that if they did, let's assume it was the same back then and they wanted to, to pull in audiences during the holidays. It's interesting that... A horror movie, basically, would be... It was treated more like an event movie. That, you know, those movies back then weren't B-movies. You know, they were major Well, and they were, they were a different type of film, too. I mean, Holly, you know, how often did, you know... At that point, I mean, you know, years later, you know, we would have films that would scare us. But being scared at the... At the movie theater was, was relatively something... A new idea, and... uh and I think that certainly maybe that was a reason. Maybe it was a because it was an event film, and and uh, but yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, and my other theory is that, and this has been true probably from day one. Phantom of the Opera came out in November. Was probably a big blockbuster. That's when they wanted to put out their next horror movie, so that it could be a big blockbuster as well. And so you that's know, possible. Three times yeah. they did that. So anyway, yeah. I just I thought that was interesting when I was going through and thinking, wow. That's three heavy hitters there that all came out in November, which I know everyone thinks these movies always would come out in October or around Halloween, and we know that has definitely not been the case in history. So that was interesting to me. Well, that's still the you know, I mean, how many times do, do we see films come out close to Halloween now? I was like, well, why didn't they release that in October? You know, there's a new Insidious film coming out in January. I'm like, why didn't they? Oh, that's not good. Yeah, a well, horror yeah, movie in January yeah, means that's uh, always the kiss of death. Yeah. But you know, even if it's a bad horror film, why not release it in October? Because you know, people are going to go more in October. There's some people who just they they go to be scared in October. Uh, and again, if you put a movie out in January, it's like, hello, this movie sucks. We're putting it out the first week after the holidays. <laughs> which I believe is when Insidious is opening. I don't know. Uh, that always kind of struck me as funny. So that's a practice that Hollywood still does today. Some things that, that I just kind of scratched my head and thinking, it's a no-brainer. Put it put it in this month. Wiser minds than, than, than I yeah. make yeah. those decisions. 
So, well, we got two bits of business left. We need to announce our contest, and we need to talk about the next episode. Which do you want to do first? Let's do the contest first. All right. So before we do that, I want to remind everyone of our phone line, 616-649-2582 or 616-649-CLUB. Richard, tell us about the contest. We have a copy of the latest film in the Memiverse, Demon with the Atomic Brain. We acquired an extra copy of this film and decided, uh, since we already had copies in our collection, that we needed to share one with you. Now, the hope is is that uh, this will eventually maybe wind up in the hands of someone who has never discovered the Memiverse before, or maybe just hasn't seen this latest film. It is a lot of fun. Um, it is a, a much more lighthearted film. Uh, if you you know hasn't haven't seen this one, it is definitely different than Where Skeeto. Um, it's it's uh, definitely as with all of the other films, a throwback to films past. You get a lot of fun homages to, to classic films and a lot of things you now come to expect in a Mimiverse film. This is this is classic Mimiverse. So we want to do a contest to put this in the hands of someone who will appreciate it. And we're going to make it as as simple and in a way that will actually help us as well. We will soon be coming upon our one-year anniversary of doing the podcast. And oftentimes we have ideas percolating, and sometimes we just kind of say, what are we going to do next month? Well, we want some ideas from you. What do you want us to talk about in 2018? And so we want you to let us know hey, I want you to talk about this actor or pick a film from this special effects wizard or, you know, uh, talk about this movie. Get very specific. Tell us a film or series of films you'd like us to dive into. You can let us know in a variety of ways. Send us an MP3. If you're friends with us on Facebook, you know, reach out to us and, and message us and say, hey, I've got an MP3. How do I get it to you? Send it to this email address. Send us a call and, and leave us a voicemail. Go ahead and uh, comment on either of our blogs or send us an email or a message or comment on a Facebook post. When this episode goes live, if, if you're hearing it, how did you see? You know, How did you go to? Did you see a link on Facebook? Let us know any of these ways. We will compile a list of names, and we're really hoping it's a long list, uh, and we will essentially put all the names in a hat and uh, we will go ahead and uh, pull a name out of a hat next week's or next month's uh, episode and then uh, we will reach out to you at that point to get your mailing address and such and then send a copy of Demon with the Atomic Brain uh, to add to your collection. Yep, really simple. Just tell us what you want to hear and you have a variety of ways to do it. Um, I think on certain days, if it's not too windy, we could even receive your suggestions through Smoke Signal. And I know that I'm open to. Uh, I have a bird, a bird feeder in the back. Send us carrier a, pigeon. Carrier pigeon will work as well. So send it. We just want to hear from you. Even if your name is not drawn, keep in mind that we will be taking all the suggestions that you send us uh, and uh, putting them on a list and, and seeing what resonates with us. And, and hopefully, we get some ideas uh, because there's a lot of there's a few things we've talked about. There's so many films we can cover. We want to hear from you. And, and uh, you know what? Maybe we'll, you know, if you give us an idea, we will uh, give you a shout out on the show and say this idea came from so and so because we want to hear from you. Exactly. 
on one hand, I feel like we're like a month behind because we did our big Memiverse episode last month. But oh. we have some new news yes, yes, this yes. month, so I think it's perfectly appropriate that this is our prize. What did we learn on? And I, you know, I waited for Halloween day by day for this announcement and then actually forgot about it and got up the next morning and saw it. I, I forgot about it, until, but I did actually see it on Halloween night. Uh, I forgot it was going to happen, and then I see the thing on Facebook. I was like, oh my gosh, it's it's the announcement day. W- one thing that was being joked about when we were at the premiere, do the Western, do the Western. Uh, Mark Hader wore a cowboy hat. It was uh, the whole thing of, of let's do a Western, and... Uh, it got some pretty good response from the fans. A lot of people are wanting it. And of course now, as Christopher's wife said, be careful because the more you tell Christopher what you want, the less likely you are going to see it because he wants to do, you know, kind of set his own course. Yet, that's exactly what they're doing with a twist. No, we're not going to be seeing a John Wayne Western from Mr. Mim. We are going to be seeing a film called Guns of the Apocalypse. Essentially, there is going to be a post or there an apocalyptic event. The bombs are going to drop, and then that's where the movie comes into play. Basically, I don't know. Clint Eastwood meets Mad Max. Is that what we're kind of headed for? Maybe, possibly. Um, definitely going to be uh, going to be a Mimiverse take on what's the apocalypse going to look like. Uh, and it's, there's gonna, it's kind of, what did he say? It's not a spaghetti no, western, it's, it's a, a, we should have written this down, no, but it's, it's a, do, ah, do the post-apocalyptic Midwestern. It has a Midwestern, yes, spaghetti Midwestern. Yes, spaghetti's in there, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that, I, you know, I saw that and I think, okay, this is a, you know, with Christopher Mims' films, he says that he's doing a journey. And his films kind of follow, in you know, in, in comparison to where they are in kind of the timeline of the films that he's homaging, he's also kind of trying to keep up with where he is in the timeline. He's doing on his uh, on the monthly Memoverse audio cast. He is doing his version of a of a spy era um, character, which he said that he would love to do, but from production standpoints, that's outside of his budget to do it right. But Spaghetti Western started in the 1960s, and so he's kind of into that Cuban Missile Crisis, world coming to an end, and we're also going to throw in some Spaghetti Westerns. So I think that's kind of where he's getting, he's just kind of progressing naturally. The big question, is the film going to be in color, or is he going to stick with black and white? Oh, I didn't think about that. Uh, I think that there are some black and white Spaghetti Westerns early, but... Most of them were in color, and uh, the trailer was in color at the very beginning, so Mm. lots of questions. You need to go to the uh, St. Euphoria website and become a a, uh, contributor, contributor. a producer. Yes, yes, absolutely. There's multiple ways that you can uh, contribute. And you know, there is no reason not to do that. If you look at it, you're just basically pre-ordering the movie, and it gives you a credit, and then you get the the movie when it comes out. And well, and he's talked about too is that there's possibility that if you contribute a greater amount, that you might become an extra. In the I, I looked for that to see if that was part. I haven't seen it yet. I mean, that doesn't mean he won't add it. But it's it's something he's he's toyed with, yeah. and so it's not official. But 
uh, yeah, keep keep an eye on that, and, and we'll keep you abreast as we hear. Uh, but Guns of the Apocalypse coming in, uh, we can assume, September or October, the fall of 2018. And, and I know, for one, I will be at the premiere. You know, I would like to say I will, but you know what dawned on me the other day? I have another event in September in Minnesota, my daughter's wedding. So, you know, it might interfere with the rehearsal dinner or something. I don't no, know. No. no, It'll be earlier in the month, but I may as well just stay uh, up in Minnesota next September. Um, and yeah, I want to recommend that everyone listen to that Memoverse monthly podcast. Not only will you get to hear Christopher talk about the, the upcoming movie, and he talks quite a bit about it. And there are a couple of things I don't want to spoil here because I want you to hear him say it, but really, really interesting things he has to say about this movie. And I think it's going to be really, really awesome. Not only do you get all that, you get the Kansas City Crypt hosted by our own Rich Chamberlain. A nice little uh, segment that he has every month on that. And I, I particularly liked this one. Uh, we didn't talk about it here and we I don't think we should because it'll be redundant. You you saw uh, Nosferatu silent yes, movie. We both and you well, talked you, I was gonna say we both did, but you yeah. almost did. I almost did. Uh, but uh, I really liked your angle on talking about the music in silent movies and what a difference that can make and blah, 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 all that. So anyway, listen to that. You can find it at SaintEuphoria.com. It's the Memiverse Monthly Audio Cast. Uh, recommend it on any day, but particularly now for those couple of reasons. Now, next month, what are we doing? We're, we're taking another journey, and, and this is into a strange wonderful land called Oklahoma. <laughs> it's strange and wonderful because that's where I'm from. But uh, we're going to road trip down to Oklahoma City and go to the Ray Harryhausen exhibit that's at the Oklahoma City Science Museum. I believe so, yes. How it started off in in Oklahoma, I there's we got a little bit of research to do because I, I, I've actually been told there's there's two different exhibits going on at the same time. And so... Uh, I'm interested to know like what pieces went where and how that's how that just got to Oklahoma. Hopefully, we'll get to answer some of those questions. But from some pictures I've seen online, it looks like they're getting some pretty cool. The Kraken, I believe. Yeah, and when I looked it up today, it's like this is the first time I noticed it says something like the creatures of Harryhausen or something like yeah. that. And then the pictures I saw, you're right, were were the familiar things that you'd want to see in an exhibit. So I I think we got the good one. I think so. Uh, we're looking forward to it. It's 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 a little bit of a trek, but not too bad. And uh, and so we're going to do Ray Harryhausen Month on the podcast. Uh, we are in addition to giving you a full fledged report on what we find down in Oklahoma. We're going to cover two of Ray Harryhausen's films, and we are going to be covering Twenty Million Miles to Earth and The Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms. Uh, we opted not to do any of the Sinbad films, and we wanted to do something that was more creature-related. So even though there may be some similarities of sorts between these two films, it's been a while since I've seen both of them. So it'll be a fun revisit and uh, just kind of talking about all things Ray Harryhausen. I believe we're going to somehow try to incorporate some words from Mr. Stephen D. Sullivan. We talked a little bit about Oh, that. yeah, we said we would do that, wouldn't we? Uh, he is a huge Ray Harryhausen fan. He is. We invited him to come with us to Oklahoma. It's a little too far for him to travel. But whenever there is uh, Ray Harryhausen's birthday, I know he spends the entire day watching Ray Harryhausen. So we're going to get him on the show in somehow, shape, or form next month. 
Actually, I've got an idea that I haven't talked to Jeff about, but we're going to get him on in some capacity and uh, in addition to our conversation. So, because I, I knew when we did this, it's like, we can't do this without at least hearing from Steve. So, uh, and I reached out to him and he was definitely on board with it. So, Ray Harryhausen in yep. December 2017. And I also have an idea I haven't talked to you about, but it is our big holiday episode. Oh, that, yeah. It's, Christmas the, it's the holidays. Yeah, we got yeah, yeah. to do some Christmas stuff. Yeah. Uh, some Christmas holiday. Mary Kwanzaa. <laughs> we'll cover all the holidays and just talk about uh, the gift of giving and uh, things that are beyond wish list because I know that there's uh, there's good stuff that's come out and uh, good stuff that's coming out and... Uh, some things that are always perpetually on my wish list. So, yeah. you know what? We're at the in the tail moment, and by gosh, I almost did mention Doctor Who. Ah, darn it! You almost got me. Well, I got a couple dark shadows in, so we, we did. Yeah. So, and I have nothing on Star Trek, folks. I don't. But uh, Doctor Who. Here's my my very flimsy, loosely connected connection to the films of today. The Brain of Morbius, one of the classic Doctor Who stories uh, from the fourth Doctor Tom Baker era. It was um, from his, I'm thinking, I'm thinking his second season and uh, is probably one of the most watched episodes of Doctor Who because it was from, from the early episodes of uh, early seasons of Tom Baker that were, were available for many, many years on PBS are considered some of the best. The Brain of Morbius was one of the First, that was available on home video, although it was available in a condensed version. It's now available on DVD, and it's you know it is probably more connected to Frankenstein, but it does have to do with a brain. There's there's a bit of control going on there and, and stuff. So yeah, loose connection at best, but it made me think of of the brain of Morbius, uh, and certainly worth mentioning. We've talked Frankenstein in today's uh, story or today's episode, so. Anyway, there you go. Doctor Who connection. I had to get it in. And I'll get this in because as you were there going on and on about Doctor Who, I was kind of staring out the window and looking at traffic. And I am faced with a street sign that says McCoy. And I believe there's a Doctor Who connection to there, possibly somebody named Sylvester McCoy. Well, and you know what? Star Trek connection. Ah, we Doctor, got it. Doctor got McCoy. It. Oh, yeah, I didn't there. even think of that. I, yeah. So, uh, boy, we're grasping at straws, yes. but we'll take it. So, yes. uh, you know, if if uh, Derek can talk Peter Cushing, uh, then I think we can. And we Creature can, of the Black Lagoon. Yes, and Creature of the Black Lagoon. I think we can do Dark Shadows and Doctor Who and Star Trek, and I think we're okay. Yeah. On that note, I think we we it's time to wrap things up. Yep. Yeah, so thank you all for listening, uh, coming to this month's meeting. We look forward to seeing you at the next meeting. Where can we? We did mention our sites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So classichorse.club is my blog. Uh, I do real quick want to say that um, we didn't do a a TV terror guide thing here today. And if you listen to the latest episode of Monster Kid Radio, all right, this isn't going to be quick. I'm sorry. Derek had Scott Morris on, and they were talking about it, the terror from beyond space. And they mentioned that Scott keeps a Google calendar with movies that are coming up on TCM and different channels. And Derek shares his calendar for social reasons, and we'll get these uh, announcements or these reminders that a movie is coming up on uh, TCM water. Well, that's something I've done on my blog ever since I started it. I have a feed, I have a Google calendar and I, and I put the movies in. And then if you go to, to classichorus.club, there's a feed and it'll show 10 or 12 of the next things that are coming up. 
And I never really told anyone because the times were off, but I figured it out. So the times are now right, central time. And just any time you go to a classic horse club, you can look and see what the next horror or sci-fi classic movie is uh, coming on. And I've got TCM, MeTV, and I just added Comet TV. And uh, I expect it to keep growing. But the idea is that, I mean, I could never keep track of what was on. So I thought maybe someone else that just wants to look and see all in one place, you know, the classic movie. So that's why I do that. And that's there. And that's all I'll say as far as plugs this week. What, what do you have going on? Well, I think we'll both probably have a quieter month in November than we yes. did last month. So um, not really any big plans for me in the next month uh, other than just to kind of keep things going on, on a lower key, uh, throwing something about Boris Karloff later in the month. Uh, you can find me at uh, kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. Taking a nap this month, probably, <laughs> and uh, watching maybe some Ray Harryhausen in preparation for next month's show. And I, I guess I, I will say also that uh, while we may be quiet there, we both will probably be pretty busy with our uh, roles as critics in Kansas City because the big awards season is coming up and we'll be watching a lot of movies so that we can make educated votes in December when the critics group meets and votes for Kansas City's uh, best movies uh, for 2017. So definitely switch gears. And I know I'll be watching a lot of documentaries and artsy stuff that uh, certainly don't belong on a, a blog called classichorrors.club. <laughs> All right, that's it. I'm going to shut up. Goodbye. I'm shutting up as well. Thank you everyone for listening. And uh, we'll be back next month. And uh, don't forget the contest. Write in, let us know. We want to mention your voice, your name, your voice, your name on the show next month. Till then, everyone, take care. Bye.